This is Jocko Podcast number 292 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. August 2nd, 2006 was the worst day of my life. Ryan Job had been gravely wounded by a single enemy round that hit his weapon as he looked down its sights and then ripped into his face, rendering him blind and critically injured. And then soon after Ryan was wounded, Mark Lee, who had stepped into the enemy line of fire to engage the enemy and protect his teammates while assaulting a building was shot and killed. Mark was a larger than life character in every aspect. Smart, athletic, charismatic, charming, talented, tough, and also hilarious and faithful and loyal and obviously brave. Now he was gone. And in task unit bruiser, we closed ranks to get through it. We celebrated his life. We mourned his loss. And then we loaded him on his last flight home. His angel flight. And we got support from our chain of command, from my commanding officer, at SEAL Team 3, our Command Master Chief, the Operations Master Chief, and the rest of SEAL Team 3 backed us up and assisted us as we worked through this devastation. But it didn't stop there. I got a, I got a call in my Tactical Operations Center. It was from Admiral Joe McGuire, the Senior SEAL Officer in charge of in charge of all of Naval Special Warfare, in charge of the SEAL teams, in charge of the boat teams, in charge of the training center, in charge of everything. And I had previously worked for him directly for 13 months as his aide-de-camp, and I knew how busy he was, and I knew what his daily schedule was like, and I knew the demands that were upon him. But I also knew that he cared. He cared deeply about the SEAL teams. He cared about his SEALs. And he cared about me. And he called to check in with me and to check on me. And when he called, he he told me that he was reviewing the Silver Star that I had submitted for Mark and he was about to send it directly to the Chief of Naval Operations for a signature based on my recommendation. He told me that he was sorry for our loss. And he assured me that he would take care of Mark's family. He also told me that we were doing the right thing and to keep doing it keep taking the fight to the enemy, to keep eliminating enemy fighters, to keep protecting the local populace, to keep the pressure on. 
because the war wasn't over and the enemy wasn't going to stand down we still had work to do lots of it and he knew that and so did I and that meant a lot to know that the Admiral in charge of all the SEALs was there for us, was there for Mark, was there for Mark's family. About three months later, October 21st, 2006, my plane landed at Naval Air Station North Island with the last members of Task Unit Bruiser to come home. And Admiral McGuire was there to welcome us home, to be sure that we were okay because he cared about his SEALs. He cared about his troops. And that meant a lot. And, and soon, I was hugging my wife and kids on the tarmac. But even as I embraced my family, I knew I hadn't brought all my men home. And that, that burden will always be present. But it helped to know that leaders like Admiral McGuire were there. We're there to help shoulder that burden, to support us, and to take care of the families of our fallen. And it's an honor tonight to have Admiral Joseph McGuire here with us to share some of his experiences and lessons learned from his 36 years of military service and his experiences in the civilian sector. Admiral, thank you for coming by. Jocko, it's an honor to be with you. It really is. Um, it's been entirely too long since you and I have been together. We've been through an awful lot together, but um, it's an honor to be with you and an absolute honor to be with you on this podcast. So thank you so much for those kind words, and thank you for the warm welcome. Well, we'll I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more, but uh, to start off with, uh, let's start at the beginning, which I believe is in Brooklyn. That's where you were born, right? You got a problem with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, Jocko, forget about it. That's where I'm from. <laughs> yeah, you know, America's fourth largest city, four million people. I was a street rat, you know. Grew up, uh, grew up in New York City, and um, uh, you know, people don't understand that actually uh, Brooklyn is on Long Island. So um, I, I spent my time in the ocean. I started surfing when I was 16 with the money that I bought my first surfboard with the money I got from shoveling snow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pre-wetsuits, or yeah. at least pre-good wetsuits. Well, they were loose, uh, <laughs> you know. But I'll tell you this, though, Jocko, when I went to, uh, you know, Bud's and the you know, folks out there, I'm sure you know this from listening to Jocko's podcast, but, you know, when you show up, they, they shave your head completely bald. And uh, when I had my head shaved by the instructors, all of a sudden they were calling each other over <laughs> to take a look at my skull because it's clearly a city kid. <laughs> I had three concussions, but, uh, yeah, no. But uh, between growing up in Brooklyn and uh, going to Catholic school, 
the SEAL instructors were easy, <laughs> absolutely nothing to do with that. But yeah. What did your parents do? Well, uh, my dad was a World War II veteran. And, uh, what did he, what'd he do in World uh, War II? He was, he was uh, military police. So my father was uh, in Patton's Third Army, which uh, till the day he died was the proudest thing he ever did in his life. And, um, uh, but you know, war was different back then. That my father was there, but I mean, everybody was there. My uncles were there, uh, flight surgeons, and, and they went to war together. Uh, and um, he spent about, uh, he actually joined the Army in 1940, before the war started. Mm. And um, you know, came home from uh, Europe after being deployed for four years uh, and uh, in uh, end of July and uh, married my mother a week and a half later. <laughs> They've been engaged. Uh, and on the 15th of August, he was shipping out to the Pacific for the invasion of Japan. Uh, and you know, so he, uh, fortunately, he, he didn't have to go and do that. Well, my father then uh, joined the uh, uh, reserves after that, and he spent 30 years uh, in, in the United States military. And my brother Ben uh, spent 26 years uh, in the Navy as a supply corps officer. He retired. And my other brother, uh, Bob, uh, was an enlisted guy for, for six years as well. And uh, when I took my uniform off in uh, July of uh, 2010, it was the first time in 70 years that an immediate member of my family was not wearing the cloth of the nation. So then uh, I could say we, we haven't won them all, but, but the Maguires were integral in winning the Cold War. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So, yeah. So you, you're going up to high school. What, did you play any other sports besides surfing? No, I swam. Yeah, no, I was a swimmer, and um, it's one of those things. Not so much in high school, but um, I would say uh, if, if it wasn't for swimming, <clears throat> I never would have gotten a bachelor's degree. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, uh, you know, the season would go in the fall into the winter, and I would, uh, you know, be on the dean's list uh, while I was swimming and disciplined. Well, you know about discipline. You <laughs> teach you the whole time. But once the swimming season took a lapse, so did I. <laughs> and I just kind of got by in the spring semester. But, um, uh, nope, I spent, I swam for, you know, my college. I was the captain of the, the, the college team, and I also swam for the New York Athletic Club. And uh, be honest with you, uh, I thought, like most New Yorkers, that I was going to just live and die uh, in New York City. So being a member of the New York Athletic Club, uh, we were all on scholarship. And the New York Athletic Club, um, they just took the top swimmers from all of the colleges and put us together after the college season. And back then it was AAU. And we'd have a swimming practice uh, at the New York Athletic Club. We'd have to go in coat and tie uh, to practice. But it was right next to Central Park South. But uh, we had a stipend, a uh, credit card, for X amount of dollars a month. So after swimming practice, we went down to the bar. <laughs> so, <laughs> to oh, refuel. Oh, it is. So, <laughs> so the co- over the course of a couple of years for the New York Athletic Club, I'm graduating from college, and there were a couple of businessmen that I knew there, uh, and they said, Joe, we want to take you to dinner. Okay. You know? So we're at dinner in one of the steakhouses in Manhattan, and, uh, you know, my friend uh, uh, made the pitch. He said, we want you to come into the advertising firm. Well, you know, guys, I'm not even a business major. He said, what is it that you want me to do? Joe, all we want you to do is entertain the clients. And we'll teach you the business. <laughs> I could do that, man. <laughs> so, you know, I'm getting ready to be a madman. And uh, I'm going into Madison Avenue. My brother is- Wait, in what it. year is this? This is 1974. 
So, so when when you were growing up, I mean, Vietnam yeah. is going on. My both brother, my brothers served uh, Vietnam. Yeah, both my, my both my brothers, um, and uh, obviously. You know, I had to make that decision, either graduate from college or, you know, go into Vietnam as an enlisted guy. But my father being a colonel and my other just said, look, um, you're not that just, I mean, you know, you were an enlisted man yourself. That's the hardest part. But in Vietnam, it's the NCOs that are the military and it's the NCOs that do the fighting and dying. Um, but uh, my father encouraged me to finish college and then go, if you, if you really want to go into the service, you know, then go in with your college degree. So I graduated in 1974, but the war was, was over by then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, my brother, from my father, I heard that I was going to go into Madison Avenue. So he was stationed here in San Diego on the USS Ranger and flew to New York City uh, and arranged for an officer candidate school test for me. And <clears throat> I did not participate <laughs> in this decision. So I was sitting at the kitchen table <laughs> And um, uh, my father goes, Ben, what do you want to tell your brother? You're going to take the test for officer candidate school tomorrow. <laughs> He's five years older. My father's looking at me. Okay. You know? So, uh, I mean, so I went down there. Now, keep in mind, I'm swimming. I got hair down to my shoulders back then. It's all bleach blonde from the chlorine. <laughs> and so, so I, go, I go down and I take the test, which are like the SATs. And um, I'm very deliberate actually slow. There were a lot of big words that I had to sound out in the test, you know? <laughs> and so uh, you, turn the, you turn the paper in, and uh, they graded the paper and debriefed the individual based on, uh, and I was one of the very last ones to finish. And it was a crummy office there in Manhattan. It was downtown Manhattan, right by City Hall. And all they had was little, little crummy office dividers that, you know, it's like 18 inches below, and it only goes up to about four and a half feet. And they got folding chairs on the other side, and you can hear everything on the other side. So they're bringing them in, and the guy sits down. He says, well, you know, Mr. Smith, you could take the test again next year. Oh, gee, Mr. Brown, you could take the test again. So nobody was passed to the test. So up there, I said to my brother, I, I don't think I passed. He said, well, we'll see. So I go in, and I sit down, and the recruiters go, so, Joe, you want to join the Navy? No, man, I just took the test. <laughs> my brother smacks me in the head. He goes, you're joining the Navy. Okay. Uh, and the, the recruiters are looking at me like, what do you want to do? Now, my brother was a supply corps officer. He wants to be a supply corps officer. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> so... They look at the score and they look at my brother. This is my brother's proudest moment. They go, your little brother didn't score high enough. He can't be a supply corps officer. So, and I said, well, what do you want to do? I mean, I, this this has only been about 15 hours. So I got the wheels turning. And um, now, back then, we were doing the Apollo recoveries. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, 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 uh, the, 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 this, the astronauts would land in the water. And sometimes the recovery carrier wasn't there. They had, so they had these B-roll human interest stories. So recently, there was a human interest story about the recovery. And there were two SEALs uh, you know, uh, and who were on the Olympic team. Now, I was not on the Olympic team, not at that caliber, but because they were, I knew of them. And one was in SEAL Team 1 and one was in UDT 13. And they did a, two, they did a human interest story on the SEALs. And now, keep in mind, Jocko, this is 1974. 
we have less than 800 people in the community. Nobody knows what it is. And um, they said, so what do you want to do? You know what I want to do? I want to be in UDT and CLT. <laughs> Give them a hard one, right? So the two of them, I mean, they're just looking like, what? Now, these guys were aviators and surface warfare guys. So they just turned to my brother. Um, they said, well, we'll be back. So now... They went back for about 10 minutes. It was probably like, you know, buying a car where I got to go talk to my manager. <laughs> they go back 10 minutes later. They talk to my brother. And meanwhile, he's, he, my brother hasn't sat down. He's still standing over me. And I'm sitting in the chair because I was told to sit. Right? And they talked to my brothers first. And they turned to me. They say, well, well, sorry, Joe, but there's no commission officers in UDT or SEAL team. And I <laughs> proceeded to tell him, that's BS, but I didn't say BS, right? <laughs> and, of course, my brother smacks me in the head again. And he goes, Joe, they wouldn't lie to you. Now, here I'm a civilian, and I'm turning to my brother. And I go, they're recruiters. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they do. You know? And they were lying. They actually. were lying to me, as you know. So uh, they, I wound up going to surface warfare to the USS Coronado. And I spent uh, you know time on that to become a surface warfare officer before I got to Coronado, California, to become a SEAL. And I will tell you this, that um, uh, the demanding life on board ship, by the time I got to Bud's training, I thought that was good duty. <laughs> and when guys were quitting, I was putting my arm around them and giving them a counseling <laughs> session. It's just like... You don't know what it's like out there. <laughs> Look, we got a mini mart down the street. <laughs> Life is good. Did, uh, did you have to go to OCS? So did you go to OCS? I did. Is that what you did? I did. Yeah. And how was the how was that shock and awe experience? Uh, well, you know, you realize like in the first couple of days that you've been duped. <laughs> it's five o'clock in the morning and they're waking you up and you got to be outside in five minutes in your PT gear PTing. You know, come on, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, that was a great experience, actually. Um, and uh, it was the beginning. It was a tremendous maturation start for me to actually join the military, go to OCS, uh, have drill instructors uh, teaching you. They had expectations. They had standards. Uh, and then also, you know, you were measured and you had to live up to something. And um, uh, really, uh, uh, it was transformational for me. And... Um, uh, I wound up doing pretty well in OCS uh, and um, did well on board the ship. And, um, you know, when I got, by the time I got to, uh, you know, Bud's class uh, 93, uh, we had the usual bit. You know, we started off with 147 guys in the class and finished with 17. And uh, I was standing there. And, uh, you know, be honest with you, Jocko, nobody, but nobody was more surprised that I wound up being the honor man. Because I told Kathy, I was married. Oh, you were the honor man. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I, I told Kathy, I mean, we came back from San Clemente. She goes, how you doing? Oh, they're going to catch up to me this week. I know I'm going to get canned this week. You know, you just never know until you graduate. And when they announced who the honor man was, I was just kind of like, uh, it must be some mistake, you know. But, yeah, so that, that went that was a great experience, as you know. Buds, Buds is a defining thing, and Hell Week is a defining thing for all of us. But the one thing about that is it all starts there, it all shapes it, and you know every one of us, whether you're the admiral with his folks in Ramadi and Fallujah, or the guys in Ramadi and Fallujah, whether you are the guy with stars in his collar, or the guy with um, chevrons on his, his collar, we all wear the same warfare insignia. There is no difference between a SEAL officer and a SEAL enlisted man as far as what he had to do to earn that. Now, the career is different over the time, but it's one thing that 
We all understand it was the crucible. It's a defining thing. And you go through that and, um, you know, it starts your journey. That doesn't really make you a SEAL. When you get your trident pinned on you, that's your beginning of learning how to really become a SEAL. And it takes, and I'll tell you, till the day I took off my uniform, I learned every single day. And as, as you know, the saying goes, you've got to earn it every single day. Was there anything at Bud's that was hard for you? Because if you were a collegiate swimmer, the swims must have been like a jill, a, a, a break for you. Yeah. <laughs> next, next question. <laughs> what about Ron? Were you a good runner? Oh, no. <laughs> no, so, so, so that's the part that really, really upset me, Jocko, is that Bud's is a running club. It's not a swimming club. You know, but that is what saved me. Uh, because I don't think I ever told you this either, but I wound up with a broken leg um, in third phase. So a, a severe stress fracture. And, um, uh, you know, I was not a bad runner. We uh, were up there at the third phase. We probably had about 20 guys, 24 guys in the class. And I was up in the top five uh, whenever finished time runs or, you know, when you do your run and that's run back to the compound, do you run your own. Um, but... Um, I was having a lot of trouble, and um, I didn't know what it was. Uh, by, by a lot of trouble, I'm 10 minutes behind the class in the classroom, <laughs> but I'm running. And, you know, the, you know, you know you're the instructors watch this stuff. So uh, back then, we did not have the facilities and the help that our young uh, candidates have. And uh, we had an E6 uh, corpsman. Uh, and uh, he told me, he said, I want you to come in. I had to leave the class. No, uh, we're well into third phase. We hadn't gone to the island yet. But um, uh, he said, I want you to go across the street and get an x-ray. Uh, yes, instructor. You know, you, uh, that's, that's always the right answer. <laughs> you know? So uh, I, I, come, I come hobbling out of the, the third phase office, and um, the senior enlisted guy, uh, Senior Chief Johnny Johnson, outside smoking a cigarette like any good seal back then. <laughs> and all of a sudden he says, you know, Mr. McGuire, stop. You know, and when instructor tells you to stop, you stop. He says, get over here. So I go over to him. He says, where are you going? I said, well, senior chief, I'm going across the street for an x-ray. No, you're not. <laughs> of course I'm not senior chief. He goes, what's up? I said, well, you know, I got a little trouble. He says, I tell you what, Mr. Mack, you got a broken leg. <laughs> he said, there's no doubt in my mind, you got a broken leg. So here's the deal. You go back in there, you put your medical record in there. I'm not making any guarantees, but if you're willing to gut it out, we'll see what we can do. Yes, senior chief. Uh, and so went back in there, and I actually, you know, was able to, I was always behind in the runs, but I was able to hop on the uh, <laughs> obstacle course and still finish in the top five in that because that's all technique. Mm -hmm. But we used to run, as, as you know, Jocko, from the compound down to the center, center beach in Coronado, which is probably a little over a mile. Something like that, and then, yeah. you know, it, And then in the water. So I would be the last one in the water by light years, but I would be the first one out of the water. Mm -hmm. So at least the instructors knew that, hey, I'm putting out. But the other thing, I think that they were thoroughly entertained that they really didn't want, <laughs> didn't want me out of the class. <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, you know, the folks who are out there, uh, instructors um, uh, you know, are the ones that really, they are the gatekeepers for who's going to wind up going to a SEAL team. And they are instructors for just a limited period of time. And then they go back to the SEAL team and the young men that they're training are going to become their teammates. So for the most part, they're sizing them up not only to meet the standards, but also to kind of say, is this somebody that I want to be a teammate with? And if I get into the trouble, 
and I'm a, and I'm a left. Is it, I got one of these guys in my left and my right, and I think that even if I was having a difficult time there, I was most fortunate to have good instructors. And and back then, um, I mean, everybody was a Vietnam veteran. Yeah. Everybody, everybody had a silver star, um, and uh, I was blessed to have a Medal of Honor recipient as one of my instructors, uh, Mike Thornton. And um, <laughs> and that helped shape me as well, more ways than one. But um, these guys had known the crucible of combat, and uh, they were looking at students, and nobody really cared if nobody graduated back then, but uh, they were looking at, uh, you know, can we trust this guy in combat? And I think that was the standard. And But I have to say, in retrospect, it wasn't me. Uh, it was the instructors that really showed me tremendous kindness, but um, you know, just uh, it was not easy uh, being able to do the stuff that we needed to do uh, at, at the end of training. There was a class; it must have been just before. It wasn't wasn't like class eighty five or eighty six where l- literally no one made it. That's correct. What, what, what class? Do you know what class number that was? Uh, I don't, but I think you're close. But the other one was uh, Admiral Eric Olson's class. Uh, wound up. Uh, with four people in Hell Week, <laughs> and the, the instructors had to help them carry the IBS oh because they could, four guys couldn't carry an IBS, and the instructors made up their mind, we're never going to let... We're going to keep at least six. <laughs> There's got to be at least six guys here to get through Hell Week. But yeah, Eric had four guys. When he, you know, His graduation picture, and one of the, uh, one of the uh, students is a, a foreign student in his class, so three Americans and one foreign guy. Uh, but it was a different, different, different time back then. <laughs> but you know, the instructors out of the back of their belt, uh, their um, um, uh, ball cap, <laughs> we made them quit. <laughs> you know, so uh, at the, you know, there were standards, uh, but uh, they pretty much were on their own as far as the, what they wanted to do. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, these are instructors that I had tremendous respect for, and uh, respect for their combat experience. And they were they were great instructors because they were intense. And if you didn't have the standard, uh, even if you were making the standard, and it was tough to see a classmate go, but in retrospect, you know, they were right. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy would not have fit in uh, to us. But yeah, and then um, so uh, graduating and uh, then off to jump school, which was always a... <laughs> They're born. Yeah, that's it. You know, <laughs> one week course crammed into three. <laughs> so. so you hit airborne school. I'm sure it was the, uh, the, the challenge to keep your... I'm sure there's a lot of challenges at airborne school for you. I can imagine the runs were not as challenging as trying to control your mouth talking to the army folks. <laughs> no. <laughs> no I, I got called into the colonel a couple of times. So actually, so uh, for, for those of you out there who have been through Fort Benning, you understand this. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the army's a little bit different than the, 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 the SEAL teams uh, to some degree. And... Um, uh, they'd have an evolution, and then what they would do is they would have the, the class line up, and you'd go online, and you'd pick up trash. And well, these guys are walking, picking up trash, and the black hats said, Mr. McGuire, what are you doing? You're supposed to be picking up trash. I'm not picking up trash. <laughs> Pick up tra- I'm not picking up trash. Off to see the colonel. <laughs> okay? So I met the colonel. You know, I'm standing there at attention, puts me at parade rest. What's up? I said, well, uh, Colonel, I'm a commissioned officer in the United States Navy. Uh, did you ever see Bridge on the River Kwai? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's that got to do with it? I said, do you remember when the Colonel wound up in the cooler because they were making his officers work because it was a violation of the Geneva Convention? 
And he's looking at me. I said, so to have your commission officers picking up trash, you realize that you've got a violation of the Geneva Convention. <laughs> so he threw me out of his office, but me and the other SEAL officers with me did not have to pick up trash. <laughs> oh, that's, that's insane. <laughs> All right. So you get done with airborne school. And then it's off to what, UDT-21? Off to UDT-21. So it was underwater demolition team 21. And, um, but uh, just like in SEAL training, uh, all of the guys there, for the now there were guys there from the Korean War who just stayed UDT, didn't go to Vietnam. They went to Vietnam as UDT, mm-hmm. but they were uh, former SEAL Team 2 guys. So we had SEAL Team 2 and uh, UDT-21, and they went back and forth. But uh, so you wind up getting five or six jumps at basic airborne. And um, then we had a jump schedule shortly after uh, I, I got uh, back to the team from, from Fort Benning. And we went up to Fort Lee to um, uh, do, do, because in, in the teams back then, you get your 10th jump and you had to buy a keg of beer. So they got the Lieutenant JG, the nugget there, who's, so they're gonna get me four jumps today. And uh, so it was an old UH-1 Vietnam single engine and uh, they, they take the doors, put them all the way back and you're sitting there, this is a static line jump and they take your static line and they hook you into a cable uh, just below the transmission on the, on the helicopter. And you sit with your legs outside the helicopter. And there's just a little um, uh, uh, tape that goes across you. And you, you get on board at first, and uh, the aircraft is not doing any turns up. So uh, then the, the aircraft commander starts doing the turn up, and the helicopter starts racking back and forth as they, you know, do, do, do. and all of a sudden I look around now, these are all senior enlisted guys. And they one by one take their teeth out of their mouth and put it in their pocket <laughs> for the jump. I was the only one in the stick of eight that actually had teeth in his mouth <laughs> when he went out there. And I'm thinking to myself, what did I get into? <laughs> Is this in a UDT or are they hockey players? <laughs> I mean, you know? So, well, make a long story short, it was a long day, but I bought a keg of beer at the end of that day. <laughs> and then what was the, what was the, what did you do at, at UDT 21? Did you go, what were you doing for deployments? Were there shipboard deployments? Yeah, there were shipboard deployments. Uh, made quite a few deployments to the Caribbean. Uh, you know, back then we had a much more robust fleet. So we actually made uh, Caribbean deployments, uh, European deployments, Northern European deployments. So um, uh, I made several Caribbean deployments and South American deployments. But in addition to that, uh, we also had time uh, to be able to go to schools. And uh, you know, just to some of our uh, 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 CIA schools and these other things in regard to you know how to do targeting and and uh, really because it was all explosives, it was underwater demolition, and CIA was really good at uh, their, their combat demolition, kitchen demolition, and these <laughs> other things. But uh, I also then at that point in time, uh, Jocko, uh, with some courses, decided to take some intelligence courses, and just kind of. Well, I think that intel and naval special warfare kind of go hand in glove. So I want to learn as much as I can about the intelligence community uh, while I'm there. But uh, I had an opportunity to, um, you know, be a department head there as well. And then, uh, you know, be in charge of a UDT platoon, which back then was, uh, you know, uh, uh, 25 men. Hmm. So uh, it it was good. And, of course, my uh, chief and my LPO, you know, both of those guys have got silver stars. And, um, you know, they, school was in session. You know, you know, you're in charge as the officer. There is absolutely no doubt about it. But you better know what you don't know and be willing to listen to those who do. And these guys 
very lovingly, um, I mean this sincerely, uh, took me under their wing uh, and adopted me. And I'll be honest with you, even back then, um, Rudy Bosch, who was the command master chief uh, at, at SEAL Team 2, he, he became the command master chief in 1962 and left in 1987. You, know, you, you know, talk about basketball ball, ball hogs, but, I mean, you know, Rudy. Um, but uh, even if I was in uh, at UDT, my LPO and my, my chiefs, who were SEAL Team 2 guys, that's how I met Rudy. And Rudy and his wife then mentored Kathy and me until, you know, we were close friends until, until he you know, started suffering from Alzheimer's disease. But it doesn't hurt to be a young officer who wasn't in Vietnam, you know, to have uh, these folks here who take you under their wing and teach you. Uh, and uh, uh, the best thing, that was not necessarily uh, the operational things, but I think the thing that I owe them most for, uh, Jocko, it's like at 2 o'clock in the morning when they put their arm around me say, it's time to go home, sir. <laughs> time to go back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, the New York kicked in then. You know? yeah, and New York comes out around 2 o'clock in the morning after X number of beers. <laughs> <laughs> so you did met. So you were married to Kathy before you went to Bud's. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, you know, you, you know, people ask, well, you know, where did you honeymoon? <laughs> Coronado, California? Coronado, California. No, so um, um, they, uh, it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, I was on the ship and we're deployed to the Mediterranean. I held orders to, uh, to Bud's. And um, uh, I came home, flew in on a, a Mack flight into Philadelphia. Kathy lived in New Jersey. And um, I went to see her first. Now, this is a dangerous thing. Um, clearly, uh, I've been overpaid all my life. And at that point in time, I was making the princely sum of $8,000. But uh, when, you, when, you, when you transfer a PCS, uh, you're able to take what's called an advance pay, oh, yeah, which is nice. sort of an interest-free loan, except you got to pay it back. <laughs> so um, I got, I don't know what I got. I probably got $1,000, $1,200 or whatever. So um, now um, I'm, in, I'm in New York, I'm walking down Fifth Avenue with my honey, and we walk into Tiffany's, and I say, let's get engaged. <laughs> so she picks out a ring. I get engaged in Tiffany's. We get married two weeks later. We go on a short honeymoon to, uh, to, to St. Croix, come back, pack up the car, and drive out to, uh, to SEAL training. And um, uh, it's kind of a shock when you go off to work one day and you come back after the instructors have shaved your head. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to my boy? <laughs> you know, but I will tell you this. Um, yeah, no, I mean it was uh, uh, it is it it was a different thing back then. Um, uh, it, it, people didn't know about SEAL training, and but uh, it was helpful to me to be married uh, in, in 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 that during that time frame. But as I said, later on, years on, when we went through so much stuff that she'd been there from day one, and she understood the community. She understood how the community was built. Um, and people even today rely rely heavily uh, mm-hmm. on, on on her for that, but um, yeah, it um, it's not something I would uh, recommend for everybody to be honeymooning <laughs> as you're going through SEAL training, but um, <laughs> we did. God bless her. <laughs> well, the thing about it is that neither of us had any idea we we're getting into, you know. And yeah, the, you didn't. You must have known very little about SEAL training back then. Yeah, I mean, even I 
when I went through, I went through in 1991. Yeah. And I had seen one, you know, the, the Be Someone special video. Yeah. That's it. There was no internet. There was no books right. talking about it. Now, I mean, there's so much information out there. You can watch all of Bud's and yeah. guys know what the schedule's going to be and all that. Yeah. Back then it was just blind. They just ripped the blindfold off you and shave your head. That's it. Oh, yeah. So um, uh, fast forward 20 years, and now I'm the commander. Uh, commanding officer of the Naval Special Warfare Center of BUDS. So um, uh, Kathy comes to meet me for lunch. We're going to go out to Coronado and have some lunch. And uh, I'm on the telephone. You know, she comes to the office, and um, uh, the secretary says, you know, he'll be with you in a few minutes. So she's standing on the balcony overlooking the grinder as the instructors are motivating. (laughs) Let's how we speak. (laughs) A first phase class, right? And so come out, off we go, we go to lunch, sitting there at lunch. Now, we've been married 20 years, went through training with me. And she said, uh, I need to ask you a question. Yeah, what, sweetheart? Did you have to do that when you went through training? <laughs> no. I said, sweetie, even then, they knew 20 years later I was going to be the commanding yeah. officer of this place. And they, of course I did that. She goes, I'm so sorry. Because I'd come home, and she'd go, let's go to dinner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did you do at UDT 21? Uh, I did, I did. I guess, about uh, two and a half years, maybe three years. And then uh, back then, uh, we were, for the longest period of time, just we, we, we got decimated after Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just UDT, but the, the whole community. So we only— Well, the, the whole Navy. Isn't it safe to say the whole Navy and the whole the military after Vietnam? The, yes, that's true. But ba- then the, the target was Russia. And we were going to handle Russia with the ballista, with the uh, nuclear triad. Got it. Right. Got it. And so, if you're not part of the nuclear triad, although I was in a nuclear weapons program in UDT, I mean, we had to deliver the B-54 Saddam. Um, and um, so, uh, uh, the we had three O sixes then. That's it. And the three of them got together and decided that we needed to send some junior officers out into the fleet as flag lieutenants. And so, uh, now this is always a bad sign when I'm, I'm deployed down to the Caribbean and the XO, Tom Richards, uh, you'll wind up, <laughs> Tom Richards comes down to visit, this is odd that the XO is kind of, so we, he spent the day with us, doesn't say anything, and we're, we're flying back up to Norfolk on a C-9, we've got the whole plane to ourselves, and I'm sitting against the window, and the XO comes and sits next to me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, I'm a popular guy. I know that, but you know, and I think I knew something was up. He goes, "Hey, Joe, um, have you ever thought about being a flag lieutenant?" <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> no, you seriously think about that? No, sir. You know, and I, I tried to be persuasive to him. I said, "Look, I was in the fleet for a couple of years. I'm in UDT right now. I need to get right. You know, after this, I got to go to a SEAL team." He says, "Well." The Commodore wants to see you tomorrow, right? This was Storm and Norman Olson, who got busted. We just had a memorial service for Norman. And really, he's one of the guys that, that shaped this. He said, you're going to be a flag lieutenant. It's as simple as that. Yes, Commodore. So I wound up going to Japan uh, as a flag lieutenant and wound up working for uh, the first admiral that made, uh, a helicopter pilot that made admiral, and he made all of the Apollo recoveries. And um, every day was a space mission for me with this guy here. <laughs> it had to be exacting. It had to be, you know. And, you know, we're driving along one day, and he goes, I'm going to make you the best flag lieutenant in Seventh Fleet, even if it kills you. And I turned to him. I goes, sir, you're well on your way. 
<laughs> but I will tell you this, um, you learned, you learned, as you know, yeah. you learned. And, um, uh, but the interesting thing is now I, I endeared myself to all of the admirals out there. And um, we had the Fleet Readiness Board up in uh, Yakuska, hosted by the Seventh Fleet Commander. So there's about 13, 14 admirals uh, there. And at breakfast, you know, they sit there together, and all, you know, all of us bag carriers, we go off to the side. And as I'm walking by with my tray, the Fleet Commander goes, Hey, Joe, come join us. It would be an honor. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture, right? So... They went around the table, and they're telling me that, and this was really true at the time, you can't go back to SEAL Team right now. You're a surface warfare officer. You've got tremendous potential. If you go back into the SEAL Teams, you will never, ever, ever get promoted. This was in 1981. And true, at that time, most of the commanding officers of SEAL Teams were lieutenant commanders passed over for commander. We only had a handful of captains, and there was no real career path, you know, for that. But I, I told them, I said, well, uh, look, I'm going. And uh, the only advice they gave me then, well, go to PG school. Okay, that was a, that was a good trade-off. But um, that was true at that time. And, you know, backing up a little bit about my father being a, a colonel in the reserves, uh, he said the same thing back then, uh, that, you know, uh, you'll have a couple of good years, but uh, you know you'll never never be promoted past lieutenant commander. It's as simple as that. And uh, you know I went to his grave one time and put my three star shoulder boards on his on his tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's uh, how long are you doing that? How long are you doing that job as the aide, the flag aide? A hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> no, that was uh, twenty five months. But I will tell you. Oh, I'll tell you, man. Jocko, one of, the, one of the best things about that, I mean this sincerely, um, is that I was the aide for CTF seventy six, and uh, a young uh, a first lieutenant uh, named Joe Dunford hmm. was the aide for CTF seventy nine. And Joe and I spent 25 months together in the Pacific, traveling everywhere together. And um, then after we both finished that tour, you know, Joe, during the course of our careers, we stayed close. And um, you know, we'd see each other on deployment. Uh, he's a battalion commander. He wound up, you know, being the uh, speechwriter for the commandant and, and a lot of other uh, jobs that it well deserve. Uh, but it was actually Joe Dunford uh, and Jim Mattis that asked me to come back into government. And uh, I hate them both for that. <laughs> no, but, but well, no, but the thing about it is with, with both those, those are two men that I hold in the very highest esteem. And I also figured, well, you know, J uh, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis came back into government, and Joe's been there for 39 years. And, you know, I just said to them, well, if you guys are taking one for the team, I'll, I'll give it a go. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I just could not say no to those two men. Right. But just what an honor. And then to actually get into the administration uh, and be the director of national intelligence, sitting at the National Security Council meeting with Joe Dunford to my right, um, it's just, you know, you just, it's a small world and you just don't know. But yeah. But you didn't take their advice and you did go back to the SEAL team. That was your next tour? I did. I did. Uh, as a matter of fact. And, um, yeah, so the journey continues. So I went into uh, to, to SEAL Team 2, and at that time, uh, our, our, our Commander Rick Woolard was the commanding mm -hmm. officer of SEAL Team 2. And rightfully so, he wanted to develop an undersea capability. 
So we wound up, uh, now, be, to be honest with you, back then, uh, we were not very good. We had good swimmers. We had good athletes. We had rotten equipment. We didn't have tactic techniques and procedures. We really didn't know what we didn't know. And um, uh, Rick, through our senior officers and the chief of naval operations, were able to establish a personal exchange program, PEP billet, uh, and bring over a French commando mm. from Commando <clears throat> Hubert. And uh, in my estimation, Commando Hubert are the best combat divers uh, in, in, in the world, military combat divers. And um, uh, Francois was charged with uh, establishing a combat swimmer program that uh, to this day was the most arduous uh, program that, that I'd, I'd ever been through. Um, and um, uh, it would, uh, extremely high attrition rate, but not everybody could do it, but not everybody could swim oxygen either. But in addition to that program, then Rick also, you know, looking back on this, it seems hard to believe, get permission to buy foreign sales uh, um, uh, things. So we were able to, we were the first was to get the Dreger, ah. German. And then we, of course, the Dreger life jacket's French. And, you know, there was a prohibition against that because we'd buy American, but it was the best technical uh, undersea combat swimmer uh, stuff that we had. And um, we did um, uh, extremely hard work up, and I was just most fortunate uh, that, you know, I had a department head tour there and then uh, you know, a platoon commander. And um, in October of uh, 1982, uh, we, we just got fast ropes. So hard to believe. And fast ropes were classified, insertion means. Uh, and we got it from the British SAS, used. <laughs> You know, spend the night, not a fortune. You know? <laughs> so, so we're up at AP Hill, and uh, Rudy Bosch uh, you know, brings the rope up. We got a helicopter, and um, we're doing. Uh, we, we first we do it. Rudy is the rappel master. He's the rope master. Talks to us about you know, this. And now I used to be on the ship. You know, as a deck officer, so I know lines and stuff. So I said, Hey, uh, Rudy. What's the tensile strength on this? How many can hold? Ah, don't worry about it, sir. Hold your whole platoon. Forget it, you know? <laughs> if that was Rudy, right? So um, uh, now Rudy at this point, he's probably knocking at the door to 60. Um, so we did a couple of runs, and he's the first one out. And um, then after about four or five runs, I just say, hey, Master Chief, this isn't too damn hard. You know, we could figure out how to curl a rope and throw it out when the helicopter flares, all right? So he sits this one out. And um, so uh, my chief, Bud Dennehy, uh, is, is going to do it. I'm following Bud. Then I've got, you know, I've got four or five knuckleheads, uh, you know, behind me. On, you know. And um, we go out, and for some reason or another, you know, Bud, the, the, the operative word is fast rope. <laughs> so he's just kind of going slow. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what was going on. Um, I thought the helicopter was crashing. And I just knew that I was in free fall. And, uh, you know, getting back into Fort Benning, I kind of criticized a little bit there. But uh, the thing that saved me is just going to a good PLF. I put my legs together. I put my uh, arms in. And for one brief second, I, I avoided the chief b below me, and I hit. And for one nanosecond, I go, I'm good. Then I had five big frogmen land on top <laughs> of me. So I broke my back, uh, and that broke my pelvis. Uh, so we're all lying there uh, as a bunch of um, uh, rag dogs, and it's dead silent. I still don't know what happened. So well, obviously when the rope broke, uh, the helicopter went up because of uh, no longer had that weight, and then he just flared it and went off. 
But all I could hear then was, uh, you know, my teammates, my platoon, everybody just kind of quietly moaning. And, and I just say to the guys, don't anybody move, right? And then he goes, Mr. McGuire, we can, <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden I realized I can't move my legs. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so typical back then, our ambulance was a nine-passenger van, and the only thing we had, uh, the only thing we had on, on the LZ was one bodyboard, uh, you know. So you know, we had to have ambulances come in. So <clears throat> I got rigor taped to the bodyboard, uh, you know, with your head down and just to, to, so that your spine's not moving. But every time they moved you, it was like with the pelvis was like cracking your knuckles. <clears throat> you know, you could hear, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, then the helicopter goes back in this land. So the colonel from AP Hill comes, and typical back then, we never told him we were doing air ops. <laughs> which he did not think was a good idea. Uh, but he directed uh, the helicopter pilot to take us to Mary Washington uh, Hospital, which is close up there, not, not the closest the closest uh, trauma hospital. And uh, so there were five of us loaded into the, uh, the helicopter. And uh, you know, the, I'm a lieutenant, these guys are lieutenants, and I, I said to the pilot in command, you know, meanwhile, I'm strapped to the body board. <laughs> I said, take us home. I said, take us to Portsmouth. I said, we're going to be in the hospital for a long time. I said, I don't my wife have my wife in a motel. I said, you know, just going to take a little bit more, but take, take us to Portsmouth Naval Hospital. So we flew there, and, you know, we got you know, taken in and taken off. And um, you know, they, they cut your uniform off and do all sorts of stuff. But uh, as we're waiting for x-rays, we were all in this little waiting room together. The other guys in wheelchairs, uh, and, you know, there were two of us with broken backs. And uh, one, one guy, uh, Kevin Blake, uh, Kevin wound up breaking both of his legs. But when he came down, he then hit, but his face went into his knees. Uh, and But, you know, we still didn't know what was what. So we had one corpsman from the hospital helping us out. And Kevin says, man, I, my nose is so stuffy. He says, hey, doc, do you have a tissue? Can I have a tissue? So the corpsman gets him a tissue, and Kevin blows his nose but he broke all of his sinuses in his face, and his whole face came away from, um, you know, from from the skull, and we're all laughing like, <laughs> 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 you know, <laughs> and and the corpsman just <laughs> running out, <laughs> it's like. It was, it was like a Jim Carrey movie there. His face is out to here. We got broken bones and broken backs. We're all laughing. <laughs> you know, always look for the bright side of life, right? <laughs> yeah. So what everyone eventually was able to heal up, no no permanent injuries? No, no. So a couple of those guys left. But uh, it was a different time back then, uh, I'm sorry to say, that um, I wound up being admitted into uh, an officer room with uh, you know, some retired Navy captain. Uh, but the troops wound up being on a ward, and uh, there were probably 20 patients on the ward, to include some sailor who had been in a motorcycle accident, and he's on a rotisserie. Oof. But it's pretty much the, a death watch. Right? So George Ann McRaven uh, and Kathy, uh, no, the two of them were the, the very best of friends. And as you know, Bill and I are best of friends. And uh, they come to visit me, and um, now Kathy's, of course, been with me the whole time at Georgia. I said, hey, do me a favor. I can't get out of bed. Would you go down and check on the guys and see how they're doing? So they went down, and um, uh, Kevin Blake 
is in traction with two hair dryers on his um, on his cast. And um, Kathy said, Kevin, what are you doing? The doctor said I could get out of here as soon as my cast dry. <laughs> but neither of them had been washed. Huh. So they'd been we'd been in the field for eight to ten days. They had camouflage on them, your hair. So I mean, no, these are two sailors, mother's sons, that been in the hospital for a couple of days, and they've still got their matted hair. I mean, so Kathy uh, and George Emma Craven, you know, got shampooed the guys, washed their camouflage off them, and um, uh, you know, just mm-hmm. do what you need to do for for a fellow teammate. And, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad to say, you know, when I've been in the hospital since then, mm-hmm. unfortunately, yeah. and um, uh, Navy medicine is really superlative now. Mm-hmm. But it was, again, once again, after Vietnam, where the entire military w- was suffering. But um, I deployed, uh, that was in uh, Halloween of uh, 82, and I deployed to Europe in March of 83, uh, five months later and jumped into Macrahanny, Scotland, and then also conducted a major exercise, a flintlock exercise, with uh, my swim partner, uh, Chuck Williams, and uh, we, from a, a, a U-boat, U, a German U-209, uh, that we, you know, we, it was a, so we had to lock in and lock out through the German torpedo tube, which was um, an excellent adventure. It's not for everybody. Uh, but uh, when we left the submarine, uh, we were in the water for 13 hours in the Baltic. So this is in uh, you know uh, late March uh, or early April of, of '83. The t- surface temperature was 39 degrees, but obviously we're down about 10 feet. And um, you know, I was just really glad that uh, you know I had a, an Olympian towing me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, yeah, we were able to do everything that uh, you know we were taught to do. And uh, the two American swim pairs successfully completed the mission, uh, and the Germans, who the Kampfgruppers were very very good. So, I mean, neither their swim pair uh, were able to do it. Uh, one swim pair wound up uh, not finding the harbor and wound up in the hospital with hypothermia, and uh, the other swim pair bailed. Um, and um, it was really kind of a defining thing for the SEAL community uh, to be able to just say, you know, we did that. But uh, the Germans couldn't speak English, and I couldn't speak German. To be able to do lockout from a German torpedo Ooh. tube, yeah. yeah. Something got lost in translation a couple of times. <laughs> and you were diving draggers? Yeah. Man, and so that's like eight, yeah. So the wetsuits back then were junk. Yeah. yeah. So I grew up surfing in Maine, uh-huh. and, and I had saved That explains all, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I had saved all my money and, and bought one of these modern wetsuits at the time. It was an O'Neill source was what it was called. Yeah. And it had an it had an embedded hood or, or a hood that was part of the rest of it. Yeah. It had a dry suit zipper. Even though it was a wetsuit, it had a dry suit zipper just to keep as much water in there as you can. And I showed up to SEAL Team 1 with this wetsuit, which was like the most modern technology. And we were doing swimmer lockouts. And I remember just, the, I was in heaven with this wetsuit. Because the wetsuits back in the early 80s, which you were wearing, just... Junk. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
And even when we went to Bud's initially, you didn't get a wetsuit, you know. Did I, you guys get no wetsuits during Bud's? Well, you, you did eventually after, uh, at, at, as you know, Jock will tell you folks, the, one of the big defining things there in SEAL training is the cold. <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you if you show up to Southern California and you see palm trees, yeah. don't be deceived. <laughs> <laughs> that water is cold. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, they, it was probably several weeks into training yeah. uh, before they get. And, of course, it was just pick something off the shelf, yeah. whether it fits or not. Well, we got wetsuits, but the wets, again, I knew from surfing in Maine, and I was kind of uh, on the forefront of wetsuit technology. And then I show up at Bud's, and they're issuing these wetsuits, yeah. which they don't fit you. It was an old school beaver tail with a zipper up the front. I mean, it, they barely helped. They barely, I mean, they provided some some bit of warmth, but barely. What's the swimmer lockout? So you're in a submarine. And then underwater, you get out of the submarine and you go. And it's a, it's a very, I don't know what it was like on the U-boat, but for the American subs, they have a, an escape chamber, which is a little ball. It's a little, it's a little sphere that you're sitting in. Mm. And it's probably, what, six, eight foot diameter oh, inside no. that ball? It, Smaller? It, it, on the ballistic missile submarines it is, but on the attack boats, it's probably about four feet across. It's tiny. So you yeah. just, and you're in there, and so you, you get in there from inside the sub. Mm. And then that thing fills up with water. And as it fills up with water, the pressure, the pressure equalizes with what's outside and you end up with just a little bit of air, mm. a couple inches. Mm-hmm. And then, then it equalizes and then you can, the, the door opens up and you, you swim out of the submarine. Gotcha. So I, I, I deployed on 12 submarines. So I, <laughs> but back then, I, once you get, you know, no good deeds goes unpunished, <laughs> you know that. <laughs> but, so that's how I wound up doing the uh, German U-boat. And it was different. Now, uh, the U-boats up in uh, the, the Baltic, they're electric. So uh, it's shallow up there as well. Our, our submarines are deep, deep draft, but they're silent. It's like trying to listen to a battery. And um, so uh, th- th- it was a completely different experience in that uh, German 209 have got uh, eight torpedo tubes up in the bow. And what they did is in port... They took a torpedo out of the port side and the starboard side. So there's no torpedo. Now, keep in mind, folks, that this is only 21 inches wide and um, I guess about maybe 21 feet in length. So we had to link up with the German U-boat in the middle of the the Baltic. So now this was, you know, planned exercise. Uh, So we fly out of Macrahanny, Scotland in uh, an Air Force penetrating aircraft, low-level uh, over Europe and then over the Baltic. By low level, I'm talking about 100 feet or so. And um, we get ready to go. You've got your, your parachute on. You've got your, 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 your limpets. You've got your weapons. And um, the door opens. You're still at 100 feet. And they tell you to get ready. You stand up. And then the aircraft comes up. Just think like a bell curve. Mm-hmm. It gets to about 900 feet or so. And everybody just jumps out. So the last man's out. The aircraft dives back down, right? So, you know, you wind up in the water, ditch the parachute, you link up, and we all get together, and then I start taking one of my weights and banging it against uh, the oxygen bottle so that the submarine can, can through, uh, you know, sonar, pick us up. So we're in the water for about an hour and a half to two hours, and all of a sudden, it's out of nowhere, Periscope, periscope. periscope up, it just scares the daylights out of you. So this is the best part about it then, right? So now 
We're in the middle of the Baltic. The submarine is there. I've got to go to the side of the submarine and tap on it in a certain signal to let them know that it's us. Who else is it going to be? <laughs> Who else is out there besides us, right? You know? So, so, so the, 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 when they do that, uh, uh, they, they, the torpedo tubes have already been flooded. They open the shutter doors, and uh, this is uh, not without great risk. So uh, the first swimmer went in uh, feet first, and that was be my swim partner. Then I would go and in. that was Chuck Williams? Chuck Williams. Who's a beast yep. in the water for sure. He's at Team 2 and I was at Team 2. Just a stud. <laughs> Taught him everything he knows. So, and then I would go in next to Chuck, and we're right next to each other. That, I mean, we can kiss each other. Now, keep in mind, we've probably had 300 hours together underwater so far. Now, then the second swim pair comes in feet first, and that he puts his fins on top of my thighs. Uh, and then the last guy comes in, and once he comes in, once he's clear of the shutter doors, you know, he squeezes his buddy who taps me on my thighs. I've got the weight, and then I tap the submarine so that they could close the shutter doors. So, all right, we're in. Now, the torpedo tube is designed to let absolutely no light escape. So even if you had a, a flashlight, you can't see anything inside there. Now keep in mind, it's 21 inches, we're next to each other. And Did you have to take your Drager off to get in there? No. Okay. So I mean, no, so no, because the thing is, oh, now it comes to the life or death situation. <laughs> so, so the reason why we figured we could do this is because an oxygen bubble is smaller than the nitrogen bubble because of what's gonna happen next. So um, we, now we've got to lock into the submarine and come into the um, uh, torpedo room. Now the torpedo room and the submarine is pressurized to sea level but we're at 14 meters. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, it was, so you, you depressurize, then you dewater. So I got a tap signal, we're all in, and then he said, you know, whatever it was, get ready to go. So get ready to go means we all had to breathe our airbags, our, you know, down to as thin as uh, paper. Now our, our folks out there, our, our bags are about the size of a football, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's it. But it had to be, you know, really sincerely, the paper, and once you had it down, then my my partner would squeeze me, and then the guys would kick me, right? And then it was a, and and then I would squeeze. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? And then I would tap them. We're ready to go, right? And he goes, here we go, and then they would pressurize the torpedo tube that w- would take us from 14 meters to the surface in one second. So with, with the gas expansion, um, you know, that, so it was equivalent. I mean, necessarily a could you, you know, it was equivalent to, you know, having a, a small quarter pound, half pound block of TNT go off in the in in the um, uh, torpedo tube. It picked the four of us up, uh, and just the pressurization just rattles you. Right, and you can hear the other guys. So, but it was then you okay, you okay, you okay. So then, then they have to dewater, and you come out. So, you know, Chuck Williams comes out. And then I come out, the other guys come out, and they'll look at me like, Mr. McGuire, you got to do something about this, you know? And that's just your... That's it. We're just, that's just getting we're, into the boat. You haven't, haven't done, any, you haven't done anything yet. Oh, no. This so, is showing up. Oh, no. So now we got a, a, now we got a three-day transit 
to the target <sighs> on board this you know German U-boat, which is if you've seen Das Boot, <laughs> I mean all it, about it. Every, everybody <laughs> in the submarine is at a central casting. I mean, the, the captain is 35 years of age. He's got the white turtleneck. He's got the beard. He's got the he's got the jack boots, um, and there's sausages hanging uh, back and forth. Now uh, it's a small crew. It's probably only about uh, maybe 30, uh, and round the clock these guys are working, but. We were supposed to be trying to sleep right right by the uh, uh, torpedo room, which is also the mess deck. So we'd get about two hours sleep and wake us up because they'd have to set up for a meal and then, you know, go back. So we didn't actually sleep, you know, for a couple of days. But then as we start getting into the target, they take mattresses and blankets and put them all on the deck. Now, uh, and now we have our wetsuits and everything, which was a mistake. In the torpedo, <laughs> you know, you're putting on a wet wet wetsuits that you know in 30 degrees. Oh. But we can hear the um, uh, ASW craft um, uh, overhead. So as the submarine's coming in, you hear the ping, 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 and then the submarine would just sit in the bottom, and then you hear whoom 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 at the propeller going uh-huh. by. Once the propeller went by, the submarine would come up. And take us in a little bit further. Now, the Germans are helping us get dressed, putting our stuff on, and because the mattresses are on the floor and the blankets are on the floor, so the sonar from the surface ships, they're not picking ah. any of that up. And then uh, uh, one by one, they pick us up just slowly, you know, load us in to, to so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the last guy to go in. And um, I mean, it's just, just, so as I'm going in, the captain comes, and uh, you know, to, to wish me well, and he could say a couple of things, you know, you know, you know, Joe, you know, target bears one three zero at certain. Good luck and good hunting. <laughs> then he gives me a plaque. <laughs> 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 Got a stick in my wetsuit, right? So we, you know, so we go through the reverse, and then we're, you know, we're at, uh, uh, fourteen meters. And then we have to go uh, get pressurized. Or no, we're surfaced, and we have to get pressurized. So that was not a, that wasn't as bad because you're getting pressurized as opposed to depressurized. Mm-hmm. You didn't have the gas expansion on that, but you had to worry about squeezes and some of the other things. And then you come to the surface, and you know we're probably about oh maybe five miles out, and we weren't supposed to be five miles out. What happened was that uh, and I, he couldn't speak to me on that. That uh, he. Uh, viewed the threat from the ASW boats and the picket boats too great to bring the submarine in and get, uh, uh, get, get, get without getting compromised. And we're out there, and, you know, now you're five miles off the coast and you're in the water and you're looking and, you know, you've got your little Ben's compass you try to figure out, and, you know, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where's the target? And I, and I, and I said to Chuck, that's got to be it, buddy. You see that one area that's totally black? That's a giveaway. That's got to be the target. Mm. So we started going towards that, and sure enough, there were picket boats there. So we had a planned dive that was supposed to start pretty much at the mouth of the harbor, and we had to start way before that. So we actually spent uh, a little over three hours uh, submerged uh, in, in this uh, harbor in Oplanitz. And um, uh, as we're coming out, um, Chuck, no, we didn't need to talk anymore. I mean, we could squeeze and anything, and uh, you know, we 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 did what we needed to do. We put the 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 the, the packages on the ships, and he signals to me, "I'm fried," which was you know, this guy's an Olympian, and uh, <clears throat> I just said, "So, okay, let's go over to the side." So, 
Now, we go to the side of the harbor, and he j- takes his mask off. He goes, I'm screwed. He said, I've got this pounding headache. I've got narrow vision. I can't see, I can't see much of anything. What we did, we screwed up. Um, we brought additional oxygen bottles on board the submarine, but we didn't bring in additional sodazorb, mm-hmm. the scrubber. So what Chuck had done, working so hard for that much time in the water, is that um, he overbreathed his rig. I mean, we're working hard. Uh, and then the, uh, uh, the the scrubber that takes the nitrogen out of your, your rebreathing, although he had more oxygen in the bottle, was no longer working. So he was having a tremendous nitrogen buildup. And he said, I just can't go on any further. <laughs> now, we've only got about a maybe a little quarter mile more to get out of the harbor, but we're, we're not going. To, and now there's, there's pickets up mm-hmm. on the seawalls w- waiting for us. So we just kind of sit there and you figure, all right. So this is a Northern Europe uh, harbor, and the seawall is probably um, 12 feet high, maybe six to seven feet wide. And um, I figured uh, the only way we're going to do this is we got to get over the seawall, get to the ocean side, and see what we take it from there. So uh, Chuck's a tall guy, <laughs> and I was able to get on Chuck's shoulders and jump up to the top, and then... You know, he handed me, you know, my Draeger, his Draeger, and then I was able to, you know, pull him up, and the, the, the two of us just, you know, lying there. Then we rolled over to the other side, and they just kind of dropped down uh, with with all of our toys and just laid there for about 10 minutes to see. And, you know, no, I mean, they had flares going off and, and other things there. And Now, the um, rendezvous, we had a, um, a fishing boat that was from uh, Danish intelligence, that was supposed to be at a certain place. And um, uh, you're looking there, and they're not at that certain place. But there is one boat out there that is another couple of miles away, right? So um, I go, now, if we didn't make the rendezvous, then you had to go into the E&E net. And these are folks, they fought World War II. So this was, you did that. I mean, you know, I think, don't want to go with the internet. <laughs> so I said, Chuck, it's not where it's supposed to be, but that's about right. <laughs> Close said, enough. I said, but I said, that's got to be it. So let's go. So we take off surface swimming mm-hmm. and on our back, and now he's kicking out with Olympic quality. And I, now, now my my hip from my broken pelvis uh, is is kind of I'm spent. So all I'm trying to do because my swimming is getting to trim and not hold him up that much. So we get to this boat, and before we get to the boat, we have to go back on bag, and then we have to go underneath the uh, this uh, the, the the fishing boat, and um, underneath the fishing boat there were chem lights mm-hmm. that displayed that told us this is the right boat. Now here it gets fun again, right? So we go up to the fishing boat, and there's a ladder over the side, and the guys in the fishing boat were Danish. Um, you know, we had to give them a certain. Bonafide, <laughs> you know, no, I've got a gun, you know, supposed to, if we're compromised, right? I figured there's two things. One, I'm getting, I don't care if it's Russians, I'm getting on that boat. <laughs> and two, if they won't let us on, I'm shooting myself. <laughs> That's it, you know? So now here you, you're, in, you're, you're freezing, you're dehydrated, you've been in the water for 13 hours, they take you below deck, and it's a real fishing boat. So they got an artificial side of the boat um, that they take off, and put against the skin of the ship. 
and they put the two of us leaning against the skin of the ship <laughs> and give us a couple of these big beers and chocolate bars <laughs> and then put the back on there and then put fish on top of it. No, I want a blanket and I want a gallon of water. So the two of us just had to hug each other all the way into Denmark. But, you know, um, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, the recruiter doesn't tell you that stuff. Sounds like a Navy Achievement Medal at least, maybe. No, no, they didn't give out medals back then, you know. No, no, I got the breast fig leaf with bronze oak leaf palms. I think that's what it was, you know. Oh, that's brutal. Uh, it was yeah. brutal, but, the, but you know, you know this, Jocko, sincerely. Uh, it was, but just to be able to come back in and just go, mission accomplished. Yeah. We did it, man. And it, you know, we did it the hard way, but, but we did it. Just the tremendous satisfaction you get from being a SEAL and being able to do a really hard mission. And, you know, even in my fitness report, you know, when that, and, uh, you know, Rick Willard brought in there, there, there are very few people, if any, in the world that could do what, what these guys did, this exercise. So, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a freaking rough one. Oh, yeah. I, I did a, was on an ARG platoon. I did a, 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 a recon. We dove into a harbor. We took pictures and the, of whatever ship. It was up, up here at Camp Pendleton. You know, we dove in. We got out of the water. We took pictures. And this was the old school, you know, film. And we come back out, and I, I had gotten, I had gotten like perched in the perfect spot. And I was able to keep the shutter open for like minutes and just hold it perfectly. And so I took a bunch of pictures. We came back, and then, and then the report I got back from from my platoon commander was that you know the 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 amphibious ready group commander said I thought these guys went in there during the night, and the and the platoon commander said they did go in there at night. This is this is good photography, but yeah, same kind of feeling. And I, I used to tell guys when you're doing a water op. It's a real world op. Like oh, yeah. there's a there's all kinds of things that can kill you <laughs> when you're out there, especially in 30 degree water and 40 degree water, and un, you know doing the in and out of the submarine. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. No joke. Yeah, I mean the uh, class ahead of me and buds, uh, we lost a young trainee uh, doing surf passage um, uh, with uh, uh, those big heavy rigs that we had mm-hmm. uh, through the plunging Coronado surf. He hit his head on the back of his um, uh, regulator. And knocked him out, but then they picked up the swim pair and uh, the, tore the buddy line, hmm. and they lost him and finally got him some time later. But uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 for real. And the ocean could kill you, or the weather. You know, it used to be the patrol leader's card that we had years ago. Uh, the first thing you'd start off was listing enemy, and the first thing we listed was weather. weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so what'd you do after that deployment? Uh, well, I, that's when I went to um, uh, graduate school. Okay. So I, I, I went to uh, the Naval Postgraduate School and studied uh, scientific and technical intelligence. And I thought, all right, I got 18 months of surfing <laughs> and screwing off. <laughs> and and uh, so my brother went to the University of Michigan, got his MBA. For 24 months, he took 40 credits. I went to the Naval Postgraduate School and in 18 months took 96 credits, <laughs> of which I had three electives. <laughs> three three credit electives. That's it, and um, uh, a good portion of it was in the physics lab, uh, and you know we're designing the shape of scientific intelligence. I kind of missed that, you know. So, um, but uh, it was a great education, and uh, you know I, I really one I enjoyed living in Central California and do that. I mean we wound up doing triathlons mm-hmm. and some other good stuff, but um, being able to complete that uh, curriculum then and then leaving there and getting all of the intelligence accesses that uh, you, know, you don't realize that those things exist until you get into the secret clubhouse. 
And then I was in the secret clubhouse, and I left there and went to uh, Naval Special Warfare Group 2 in Virginia Beach, uh, which is the uh, uh, oversight uh, uh, group commander for the SEAL teams on the East Coast as the intelligence officer there. So it was a very, very good time to be the intel officer because we were involved in um, uh, 1986 El Dorado Canyon, uh, the uh, uh, Libyan campaign. Uh, we had the Central American Wars, uh, and also we did a significant amount of uh, uh, work uh, in, in, in other areas there. But um, you know, that really is when I first got involved in, in deeply involved in, in, in intelligence. But uh, to me, it just went hand in glove with being a mm-hmm. SEAL that you know what to ask for. That we didn't we didn't really know what the menu was because mm-hmm. we didn't know. And then once, we just once, kept ordering burgers it. and fries. <laughs> well once 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 you realize exactly what the intelligence community has gotten as capability, you can really refine and the other thing as well, more importantly, is you know this, Jocko, it doesn't matter what you got in your collar. Uh, it doesn't it's who you know in relationships. It's all about relationships. And when you had, you know, folks who were the N2 of Second Fleet, and, said, and I went to graduate school with this individual, you know, that, that really paid off great dividends, uh, you know, for the community. But, you know, when it came to what we were doing in, you know, uh, Benghazi and all of these other places, you know, I mean, we had built target folders for, for all of that stuff. And uh, when it comes to Final Jeopardy, if it's a geographic question, I probably had a target folder on it. <laughs> <laughs> and then didn't you end up going to now back to SDV? Or when did SDV, when did SDV form up, SDV Team 2? Uh, SDV Team 2 formed up uh, in about 1979, 79 or 80, because we had a UDT, det- uh, we had an SDV detachment in uh, UDT 21. And that was siphoning off so much of our money mm-hmm. and so much of our time uh, because uh, a great idea, but uh, we did not have the technology. And uh, the guys spent a great deal of their time switching out the bow holes because they kept crashing into piers and rocks and, and some <laughs> other things. But cold and miserable. Uh, but the other thing as well, it was a really good time for me to, to go to SDV because that's when we first started to modify the nuclear-powered submarines to carry us mm. as opposed to just having us go on there and putting towels on the deck and telling us not to make a mess. And um, we, just, we just had the dry deck shelter. We had the mobility improvement project, uh, which was a, a national mission uh, to the first uh, dry deck shelter, which is – this is a garage, folks, that we put on a nuclear submarine – uh, and we put our submersible boats in there, and we we come out of the, the submarine and into that. It's like a garage, and then we go off on a mission, probably about ten to twelve hours, and um, uh, in a cold, wet submarine. And um, uh, it really, I'm glad that I had that other background uh, in that that I was able to bring an awful lot to comfort. <laughs> the uh, commanding officers of the submarine that, you know, which you guys are going to ruin my career. It's going to be okay, Captain. <laughs> we probably will, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> you know? But, uh, yeah, and uh, Bill McRaven was there j- just before me as, uh, as, uh, as a platoon commander and Evan Thompson. But, um, you know, also at that point, I didn't want to be that ambitious, uh, Jocko. I mean, necessarily. But I just figured, you know, if I ever do wind up being in charge of the community, I'd like to know something about everything in the community, mm-hmm. and I and I really strive to uh, at least have one tour and have a, a good sense of what it's all about. Mm-hmm. At what point did you realize you were just going to do as long as you could do? Oh, uh, when my wife told me that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean this sincerely. So, um, 
uh, I guess I was at the ten year point. Uh, we we just we we you know we we did Grenada, uh, Vietnam is over, and are we going to do anything ever again? And it was kind of unlikely. I mean, we're doing exercises and everybody was bored, and I was not over, well. I don't know if my old former senior guys listened to this, but yeah, we're not a whole lot of folks who were inspirational leaders ahead of me. Let me put it to you that way. And I just figured, okay, uh, I'm going to go to law school. So I was applying to law school, and um, uh, I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm going to go uh, be a lawyer. And I finally get this counseling session from Kathy. She goes, you're not going to be a lawyer. She said, you're a SEAL. You're a good SEAL. Every friend we have or SEALs. I'm not going to give that up for you just to become another crummy lawyer. <laughs> S- sorry, counselors. But <laughs> so, so I just said, you know, this, like any good husband, okay. <laughs> so uh, I just decided to, you know, jump back in with both feet. And then, you know, you take it as it comes. Uh, you know, at the 20-year point, we've all got to decide whether or not we're going to retire. But uh, as you know, the service is like they put that carrot out in front of you. You know, okay, I'll take that promotion, and then I'll get out. Then they put another carrot. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing you know, you're old and ugly, and you got 36 years in the navy. <laughs> so was that your was that your EXO tour at SDV team? It was, it was, and had a lot of time at sea. Uh, you know, on board the submarines and, and doing uh, operations. Uh, so yeah, that was good. That really was a really really good tour. Uh, really become. Um, uh, it was, a, was the first deployment that we ever made with the dry deck shelter. Mm. And, you know, th- th- when you're when you doing the first, uh, there's nothing. I mean, you had to write everything. You had to write the tactic, tech, these procedures. And you know, the procedures working from a submarine are life and death procedures. Yeah. And you really had to know and be extremely cautious. And there really was the unknowns. And you just like, you go back and forth. And you know, in the community, you know, we, we are a risk-taking community, but you never take a risk you don't have to. So we really had to put, you know, pros and cons of most experienced folks, and then sometimes, honestly, uh, pretty much we knew it. Uh, it was going to be okay, but you still were rolling the dice sometimes. Mm-hmm. But the credit really belongs to those guys, uh, you know, the pilot and navigator and uh, in, in, in the STVs, to be able to go from a nuclear submarine submerged in the middle of the ocean and go, you know, into do a target, and come back ten hours plus later and find that submarine uh, is a remarkable feat. It really is. So, you know, really the credit goes to to, the, to those young operators, hard men. I still think that, you know, that is probably among our hardest missions that we've got. And as you know, there is not a wetsuit thick enough <laughs> to keep you warm. <laughs> And so then what, did you go, is that when you went to detailer after you got done with that tour? You became no, the no, detailer? I, I, no, I became the Maritime Special Purpose Force Commander. So I deployed, oh, nice. yeah, so I deployed for a year uh, with, uh, with uh, the, you know, the Marine Detachment and with our detachment and uh, got over to the Mediterranean, got involved with another submarine operation there uh, for the evacuation of the embassy in uh, uh, Beirut. Oh, okay. This was the second time that I was in Beirut. I evacuated when I was an ensign on board the ship in 1976, because oh, wow. uh, uh, they were at war. And the ship pulled in the middle of the night, and all of Beirut was on fire. And uh, the Palestinian Liberation uh, Authority gave us permission hmm. you know, be able to have one boat come in and a junior officer uh, to take the Americans out, to include the United States ambassador. And I'm in my, my whites with my little shoulder boards, and uh, you know, the, the PLO were pulling these guys out from 
uh, line, not letting them get on board our boat. And I'm on the walkie-talkie calling back to the ship and talking to the XO. I said, sir, you know, they're, they're pulling people out. Just the only thing we could do, don't do a thing, Joe. Just, just don't. Don't leave that boat. And, you know, don't do anything until the Americans are on board and the ambassadors are on board. But it really, to me, uh, this was in July of 1976 with the, you know, 200th anniversary of, of our nation. And I'm thinking, here we are, the United States of America, and we got these folks dictating to the American ambassador who represents the president of the United States and us whether or not he can get on board a, you know, an LCU. Um, and that was a pretty defining moment for me. Uh, but um, uh, so then we did it again uh, at that time frame. And uh, I had the opportunity to go back to um, Beirut when I was the SOCOM commander with the JSOC commander and had lunch with uh, the um, uh, Lebanese commandos. And it was a great lunch. We're sitting there, and I'm talking to the Lebanese commander who's you know, hosting the, 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 the lunch. I said, well, I'll tell you, General, um, this is my fourth trip uh, to Beirut. And uh, the other three times I've been here, um, I never spent more than an hour out of the three trips, you know, we're in and out. And, uh, you know, so we, we spent probably, a, you know, better part of a day there in Beirut. But it was just interesting when I went into 1976 to see it as a collapsed city on fire and to go back in, 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 in uh, 2019, I guess, uh, and just see it, it looks like Hong Kong, except that uh, they're, they're bankrupt. Uh, but, but uh, no, it's funny how from ensign to political appointee, uh, but it all... You know, it's always been a troubled spot. What was the uh, this when you when you went there and pulled guys out, or did the embassy evacuation with from a submarine? What was that operation like? Well, we can't talk about that right Got now. It. It's silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so then, what was after that? So you you did that deployment so, with the right. with the with as the, the right. special force then, commander. Yep, and then uh, and then from there up to uh, uh, to DC. So uh, it was my first Washington tour. And as the uh, assignment and placement officer for the community, and it was an awful lot of fun. That you know, you're the one person in all community making all assignments from ensign to captains, and everybody hates you. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> you know, but um, that was that was a really good one. I did the best I could to even the playing field and and distribute. Uh, but uh, the other thing is, I had an opportunity to work and serve on selection boards. So you're a junior officer and you're supporting the, the senior off the captains uh, and the admirals as they make their selections. And you see the selection board process and then you see who gets selected and who doesn't get selected. And you could just sit back there after a while and go, don't sweat the load, man. <laughs> just do your job. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. You know, because everybody's record, you know, when they're up for flag, just about every one of those captains uh, their records are like manicured lawns, but not everybody's going to get it. And it's just, it doesn't matter. If you're going to get it, you're going to get it. But if not, just relax and just do your job. And really took an awful lot of pressure off there. But, um, yeah, that was a time uh, uh, that then we wound up with um, uh, uh, First Gulf War. Mm-hmm. So wound up leaving there and going down to uh, Dev Grew as the deputy commander. And then how many how many years did you spend down there? I spent uh, two years down there, and then um, uh, left to take over uh, commanding officer SEAL Team Two. Now, during this time, would you say that this is a time where you know you had uh, the first Gulf War happen? Are SEALs starting to kind of 
kind of become popular yet. I mean, I came in in 1991, as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, there was the the Navy SEALs movie, which I'm sure Echo Charles likes. The Navy SEALs movie, I think, came out in 1991. Yeah, I'd be a Chuck Forrest movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there was still not a lot of no. not a lot of popularity. It wasn't a big no. deal yet. No, so you know. Um, um, don't want to have a history lesson for everybody out there, but uh, uh, because of uh, the failure of the Iranian hostage uh, rescue mission uh, in April of 1980, and then compounded by what happened in Grenada, um, that uh, the civilian side of the house made the decision that, especially because of the failure of the Iranian hostage rescue mission, that if we as a nation want to have an organization that be able to conduct no-fail missions, that we need to be serious about this. And there has to be one command that's organized, trained, and equipped to be able to do that. That started shaping the, the community. But we were still in the Navy, the Army was still in the Army, and through the Department of Defense Appropriation Act of 1987, Senators Nunn and Cohen tacked on the end of that appropriations bill, the establishment of United States Special Operations Command, and bringing in the Navy SEALs, Army Special Forces, Rangers, and, and, and uh, 160th, uh, and Air Force Commandos under United States Special Operations Command. So then we had our own line of, uh, of, of money for, for, for Unique. But be honest with you, um, at that time, uh, my friend Tom Coulter, who mentioned that, you know, okay, once once the SEALs came into the United States Special Operations Command, Tommy goes, well, congratulations. We're now in the bottom of two food chains. <laughs> 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 Pretty much we were, you know. Uh, but um, uh, we still, in spite of that, uh, the, the resources didn't flow. And um, uh, the active duty military did not necessarily want to have this. And if they did, they wanted to have it. Three-star command, you know, it's close to Washington. And it was our civilians uh, that said, no, we know the military. It's got to be a four-star. And, um, well, actually, probably had an awful lot to do with a powerful Florida delegation more than anything else that we wound up in, in McDill. But um, it, it took quite a while, and we would just be coming. And, uh, but uh, the leaders of the community made very, very good decisions on with the limited resources we had. Uh, and we had other opportunities to do away with certain types of things that we as a community did. And one of them was, you know, unconventional warfare, that uh, the special, the Green Berets were, were going to do away with that. And luckily they decided not to. So when 9-11 happened and they were able to send the 5th Special Forces in, you know, with John Mulholland as the group commander and, and the other young folks that wound up being the horse soldiers. But that war was the defining thing for the community. Unfortunately, we paid a heavy toll to be where we are today. But uh, when the opportunity presented itself for both Afghanistan and Iraq, um, special operations mentality and capability was at a premium, and we were ready at that time to do that. And luckily, the active duty military had come around, as well as the senior civilians, and completely changed the resourcing for the United States Special Operations Command, and I have to say really gave us all the tools necessary and bent over backwards to make us as successful as we possibly could be. And we were carrying all the water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so um, she said, back then nobody knew who we were. Now everybody knows who we are. 
but that also has got to do with the tax that we paid and the brave people that you mentioned a little bit earlier who, mm. you know. And if I could talk about that just a little bit um, with Mark Lee uh, and, and, and Ryan. So, uh, you know, Jocko mentioned about uh, me welcoming the, uh, the, the men home from combat, but I also, Jocko was already deployed to Iraq, and I would also see all of the guys off before they got on the plane and left. So Jocko's got a bunch of guys um, uh, from his task unit. I didn't want to bother them. They're talking to their wives. And then it's time to kind of go out to the plane. And um, so we're standing around, went out of the plane. I said, look, guys, one last thing. I said, the genie's here. Rub the lamp. Make your wish. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, guys, some folks are reluctant to talk to a guy with two stars in his collar. And now Mark Lee was a new guy. This was his first deployment. And Mark Lee comes up. He says, hey, Admiral, I want to talk to you. <laughs> All right, what is it there, Petty Officer Lee? He says, you know, we're over there. We're fighting the war, and we're these Humvees, and these Humvees are not air-conditioned. We need air-conditioned Humvees. Well, Mark, i tell you what. You know, you're in a war, and you just can't stick an air conditioner in there because if a bomb goes off, you might wind up eating it. So let me do this. Let me go to the United States Special Operations Command. I'll talk to General Brown and see what we can do. And I went back to my office. I called General Doug Brown, who was our SOCOM commander. He says, look, got it. I got it. And that was his big, I got it. But he said, but we have to do this smart. And we wound up with air-conditioned Humvees in Iraq because Mark Lee asked for that. Now, um, and to me, you know, as the admiral, you work for the men. And if that's what they needed, uh, that's what they got. But one of the most moving things in my life um, was when Mark came home uh, to San Diego. So when you come home, you get flown into Dover, uh, and then from Dover to San Diego. So there were a bunch of us that went down there to meet his body as it came off this commercial plane. And um, there were folks at San Diego Airport were, were very kind to us and let us uh, you know, come down. So now everybody had to remain on board the plane with the exception of the, our escort officers that escort Mark's body back. Uh, and I'm down there with uh, the Master Chief and, um, uh, and the, the body comes off. And I mean, all of a sudden I realize it's dead silent in the airport. There's no planes moving. There's no cars moving. I mean, I just, I was so focused on the coffin coming off. And then I look up in the terminal and everybody's pressed against the glass. I mean, everywhere. And I, one of the airport, uh, I said, what's going on? He said, we stopped everything. We stopped everything. And they made an announcement in the airport that the first SEAL who was killed in Iraq is coming home. Why don't we all go out there and welcome him home? And um, that really, that was, that was remarkable. <laughs> and as far as, uh, you know, Ryan Job. <laughs> I mean, you had to know Ryan, folks. I mean, Ryan was just indomitable, absolutely indomitable. So now here he lost his vision, and he's in a Bethesda Naval Hospital. So I just coincidentally, I had to, I was going to be there anyhow because we had a, a Navy cross ceremony for uh, two of our uh, uh, SEALs that were with uh, Michael Murphy in uh, um, Operation Red Wings, who were, who were killed in that. They were, they were posthumously receiving the Navy Cross. So we had a big ceremony planned uh, at the Navy Memorial. So a few of us in town, we go to visit uh, Ryan 
uh, who is at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. Now, we go there, and Kathy's with me, uh, and he's asleep, and there's a woman there. Turns out to be Ryan's mother, right? <laughs> so uh, go up, and he wakes up. And he goes, hey, 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 guys. So, of course, all the knuckleheads go in, and we start talking. Now, he's, he's blind, um, and but he's, he's himself. Um, and so, even maybe a little more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know who did this. Now, I'm, I'm talking to you know Mrs. Job, and you know take good care of your son. And we still didn't know what his disposition was mm-hmm. going to be. I mean, he just came out of combat. He'd only been in the hospital for a couple of days, and um, um, so somebody says to him, "Hey, Ryan, we're going to have a major ceremony at the Navy Memorial for the couple of guys they're receiving the Navy Cross. You want to come? Yeah, I'm in." Now, he's blind, so he can't see this. His mother just points to me with the old you outside. So she drags me into the lobby, and she has got her fingers in my chest, right? My son just lost his vision. He did. Yes, Mr. Job, I got it. Yes, Mr. Job, we got it. Yes, Mr. Job, we got it. So um, uh, I said, Mr. Job, look, I'm not going to. But if, if our teammate wants to go, I mean, it's up to you. I'm not going to get involved, but I guarantee you, we will have a car for him, we will have a place for him, and we will have a big bad seal who will escort him. Do you remember who you sent home to be his escort? I sent three guys home, I'm, I'm not sure which one. Well, one was the American sniper, yeah. right? So yeah. um, so, um, so I, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I mean, this is a very moving thing because we got the Gold Star families there and mm. everybody was there. It was a sunset ceremony in Washington, D.C. and um, uh, the Secretary of the Navy, the, sec- uh, the, uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, all of Washington senators, uh, and I come out, and the lights are on me, and it's a semicircle amphitheater. And as I'm talking, welcoming everybody, I start over the right. Where is he? 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 And as I'm talking, and I'm scanning the crowd, and all the way over the left at an end seat, there's one individual who has his head turned to the side. I realize it's Ryan, so he can hear me. Right? And I'm kind of looking, and I figured, all right. And then who stands up behind him, right? I got him. Chris. <laughs> I got him. Chris Kyle. I got him. Go, okay, he's in good shape there. <laughs> you know? So uh, we, went, we went through that. And I got to tell you, uh, the ceremony was moving, but we had a reception after that. And then we went down to the memorial for reception. And, you know, dumb frogmen that we are, you know, we got, you know, he's blind. You know, put them in a chair. So it was almost like Animal House when they come into Delta House. You've got the nerds that they just kind of stick to the side. Just sit, you know. So we keep trying to get Ryan. To, and meanwhile, now keep in mind, he's two weeks since he's lost his vision. Um, and there are hundreds of people there. And he's just walking around the crowd. And, of course, I'm on him now. And everybody's, you know, I'm on him. And, and he bumps into this woman. And, you know, he goes, oh, oh excuse me, you know. Hi, I'm Ryan. Who are you? Hi, Ryan. I'm Barbara Boxer. <laughs> he didn't have a clue that it was a senator. And he just started chatting her up. I figured, my God, you know? So um, uh, it was a wonderful reception. And I stayed till the last Gold Star parent left. And I'm fried, I got to be honest with you, because I had to do Navy business there today. And then, you know, and you're on it. And it was emotional as could be, as you can imagine. That emotion is, is just raining. So um, um, I, I forget if it was Danny Dietz's uh, family or uh, Axelson's family that, le- that left the last. And I just figured, okay. I turned to Kathy. 
I said, all right, baby, let's, let's, let's get back to the hotel. She goes, oh, no. She says, all your men are at the Irish pub. <laughs> you got to go have at least a beer with the boys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, my name is McGuire. I didn't take <laughs> So I go into this bar, and it is packed, <laughs> packed. So, of course, the guys are being nice to kind of make a way for me and Kathy. And up against the bar with the beer in his hand and his elbow on the bar, is Ryan Job <laughs> drinking a beer, just being one of the boys. Uh, but one of my favorite stories about Ryan, um, after he, he got medically retired, he became very good friends with our four-star commander, General Doug Brown. And um, uh, so he calls up General Brown, and he says, Hey, sir, um, I'm going to climb Mount McKinley. I'd like you to come with me. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, Ryan, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, in my 60s right now. I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> General Brown told me this. He goes, General Brown, I'm blind. <laughs> You've got no excuse, you know. So just, I mean, it, it's a indomitable, just wonderful, just an inspiration. Yeah. One inspiration, both with Chris, Chris as well, an inspirational person. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, you said he was medically retired, but there was a time where he was not sure if he was going to medically retire. Right. And you know, I he said to me, he said, "Well, you know, can, can I stay in?" And I said, "Well, I don't know, but I know someone that does know." And I, I came by to see you, and I said, "Hey, there's a chance that Ryan wants to just stay in." Mm-hmm. And you looked at me and said, "Then he stays in." Yeah. Now my thought was, um, when you look in your mirror uh, and and you see yourself, you see a seal. And my thought was, I don't have any one of us telling our teammate he no longer can do it. Mm-hmm. Our teammate has to come to that realization on his own. And I just thought sooner or later, I mean, it's just hard to make that break, especially, you know, you're coming from combat and going through all this stuff. Sooner or later, you realize, you know, because I learned that from Tommy Norris. Uh, Tommy was uh, one of our Medal of Honor recipients from Vietnam, and uh, Tommy was um, uh, severely wounded. Uh, but because he was a Medal of Honor recipient, that, you know, Tommy, you could stay. And Tom made the decision, uh, I could stay, but I, I don't think I'm a full-up round anymore. And I just, you know, in, so he made that decision mm-hmm. as well. So I learned that years ago, and I just thought, let my teammate decide when it's, it's time for them to go. Yeah, that was that was awesome for him to have that option and for him to know that we, as, as long as he wanted to be in the teams, he, he would be in the teams. That was freaking awesome. Um. Where were we? We were at what? You were you were about to take over SEAL Team Two. Well, I took over SEAL Team Two um, and uh, left there, and uh, I had the misfortune of getting deep selected for captain. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm deployed in another submarine uh, with the with the SEAL Team down in the Caribbean. So we've been we've been at sea now, probably submerged for a week. And, you know, as you know, Jocko, we, when you finally finish, you come to the surface, they put the uh, antenna up, and you download uh, the, the, the traffic. So um, we're, we're just, we've gone admin now. Uh, we're up in the sail. That's, uh, the submarine is running on the surface. And, you know, you folks, you see pictures like that and recruiting things where <laughs> the folks are up there. So I'm up in the sail with the commanding officer of the submarine. And the you know, guys are in the, uh, just aft of the sail, putting our, you know, boats together and some other stuff. And... Um, uh, the uh, sound-powered phone rings, which on the on the submarine, you know, <laughs> the captain picks up the phone, you know, captain, and um, he's listening, and he starts looking at me, 
And I figured, oh, God, what did my guys do now, you know? And um, uh, he hangs up the phone, uh, and he looks at me. He goes, we just got a message. Um, you, you just got selected for captain. I said, that can't be. I'm not eligible for another two years. <laughs> he goes, well, what's your year group? I told him, he goes, damn, Joe, so is mine. <laughs> so, so with that, um, I wound up uh, you know, not staying as long as I would have liked to, but uh, I left there and then went to, uh, 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 got selected for uh, Harvard as a national security fellow up there. And uh, that was uh, another remedial education program <laughs> for me. You know, the, the part that gets me about Harvard, really, I mean, it's got a good reputation, but who knew that spelling counts? <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, how long are you up there for? Uh, 13 months. So it was a one-year fellowship, uh, but uh, it was remarkable. Uh, so uh, I had, I had um, officer rank. I was a member of the faculty club. Uh, and it was just great to be able to have my mother, take my mother to the faculty club and just tell her, you know, even C students can make it to the Harvard <laughs> faculty clubs, mama, you know? <laughs> so, but um, uh, it, I, it was really great because it was small seminars uh, focused, and what I was up there really to do is advance research in national security. But the folks that I had up there at the Kennedy School is really the holding tank for government. Uh, they were either former secretaries, former ambassadors, and I became, because one, you're a SEAL, and I just, uh, and had the rank, that I was included in everything there. Um, just really remarkable uh, that, um, you know, some of the seminars I was in, I had to put a, um, maybe once a week, because we had to take turns submitting a memorandum. And uh, then go to the two professors who, one would be the former Deputy Secretary of State, and the other one was, you know, an Undersecretary of Defense. And they'd go through this darn thing, and they'd go, Joe, you dope. <laughs> you can't say that. They're going to leak that to the Washington Post. And, and honest to goodness, like, here's how you say it without, you know, indicting. I mean, just really good practical stuff. But um, because I got included in everything, this is at a time when um, – uh, Ted Kennedy was still alive and the senator from uh, Massachusetts and uh, John John was around and they'd come to the Kennedy School all the time but uh, uh, Senator Kennedy's sister was the ambassador to Ireland and um, uh, the Kennedy family invited Jerry Adams to come to uh, <laughs> Boston uh, and then he gave a, a lecture in the evening uh, at, at the Kennedy School and, and then a small dinner so you know, the, the, these were all emer emeritus professors would you like to come, Joe? Boy, would I, you know? And we had dinner. There were only about eight of us at dinner. And he was holding court. And I got to tell you, I was just sitting there watching and thinking, no wonder. I mean, this guy, these are all senior emeritus Harvard professors, and they were eating out of his hand. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this guy's good. This guy's real good. <laughs> um, so then our, our four-star at that point in time, General Downing, came up to visit. He came up on a regular basis to Harvard. And so what have you been up to? Well, I had dinner with Jerry Adams. <laughs> Ooh, that didn't go good, <laughs> you know? Because it's just, you know, Joe, he's one of the biggest terrorists in, in the world. I said, well, you know, the thing about it is, boss, what an opportunity to learn about him. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you just can't. I'm here to learn. And even if it's an unpleasant or you're here to learn. Mm -hmm. And I learned an awful lot just about maybe the couple of hours that I spent there listening to that guy, just how good these folks are. Um, but... Tremendous education, 
And then from there, I went to become the deputy of sock pack. So I had all of these beautiful suits and overcoats and things that I wore at, at, at Harvard. And then you're in Hawaii. And then I'm in, uh, you know, aloha attire. <laughs> <laughs> Don't throw anything away. You never know. <laughs> and, and then what you're, you're doing the deputy. What's the deputy position like out there in sock pack? What are you doing? It was wonderful. Um, so uh, in, in, in the Pacific, uh, sock pack was co-located in the same building as the Pacific commander. So we actually were, although a separate subunified command, uh, Admiral Preer, who was the um, uh, uh, Pacific commander, actually made us a part of his staff. So well, we, we had the best of both worlds. That uh, in the morning, you know, I'd be up there because uh, the general tr- traveled a great deal. And I would be the one that represented, sit there, you know, with the four star and his his staff, getting the all of the classified briefings up in the skiff, and then down to uh, another conference room where a broader audience with the um, uh, uh, less classified things were discussed. But going through um, uh, interesting things uh, with uh, sending two carrier battle groups into the Taiwan Strait, mm. um, and just seeing that unfold. But we also had a, uh, a, a situation where uh, this was the first time I really became aware of beheadings. Uh, we had a group of Westerners, this is in August of 95, uh, uh, on vacation through the uh, Hindu Kush. And uh, this was up in um, mm. uh, the line of control uh, in Srinagar. And they were captured and held ransom by uh, Muslims up there. And one of the captives, a Norwegian, uh, uh, ran away, and they caught him, and they cut his head off. And they put one his body on one part of the town, and the head on the other part of the town, with a ransom note, you know, on either. And the uh, Indian military then uh, came to the ambassador, who was uh, the senior-ranking ambassador in the United States State Department then, who went to the secretary, uh, and we had to deploy a, a Delta Force. Uh, uh, assault team there uh, with uh, General Pete Schoomaker, who was um, uh, the, the JSOC commander. So uh, we were doing uh, not command and control for them because the Pacific Command was doing that, but there was nobody in the Pacific Command that understood that. So I was standing next to the four stars desk. This before Admiral Preer showed up. This was Admiral Mackey, uh, and he had to draft. Uh, a personal form message to the Secretary of Defense and to the chairman every day. And uh, I drafted those messages for him. And, uh, you know, he changed a little bit, but it was that time I had in Harvard. I mean, this is certainly, mm-hmm. I never would have been able to do that before. As I said, spelling counted. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, he would change a couple of things. Uh, and uh, they were deployed there for uh, 40 some odd days. And um, well, um, uh, we I, we never got the hostages mm-hmm. back. So uh, when when just they um, were there, this now it is um, September, so it is the anniversary of uh, uh, the end of World War II, and the the president is there, uh, the Secretary of Defense, everybody's there. Just this is Bill Clinton, and and, and uh, uh, this is so this is ninety five. So, um, and now I've been locked up for 30, 40 days. I'm as white as a sheet, uh, but because I wasn't going anywhere, you know, I'd go home for four hours and sleep and shower and come back. I'm in my, you know, aloha. I'm in, I'm in my flip-flops, I'm in my board shorts, and I'm in my T-shirt. Now, 
the, the Pacific commander is down there with the president and everybody having breakfast, but his aide uh, is, is up there, and I've got to run all of these things by him. And I'm explaining, said, okay, Bur- you know, what they're asking for is they want to go forward and be with the, the, the Indians are going to do a takedown, and they want to have our guys to be with them during the takeout. And I'm trying to explain it to him, uh, and, and he's an, you know, an attack pilot, and he finally, you know, keep in mind, he's in chokers with all of his medals and the big gold agulets that the aide wear, and he finally says to me, well, I can't get this, you got to come with me. All right. So I'm following him, again, flip-flop. I got, you know, this bag handcuffed to my hand, right? And we jump in the car. And as I'm in the car, I'm truly, I don't get it. You're just going to have to explain it yourself. Now, I, I, I completely forgot what was going on, but as I get down there, you got all the Secret Service agents, you've got metal detectors, <laughs> right? And, and you've got two, you got an aircraft carrier on one side of the pier and two cruisers on the other, right? And they're all at dress ship. And everybody's standing along, manning the rail. So <laughs> Bud jumps out of the car, and he just runs through the metal detector, and they've seen him for several days, and so they know he's good. And I come after him, and there was the Secret Service guy says, I'm with him, man. I'm with him. He's with me. So we're walking down the pier, and um, uh, so uh, we're standing there, and again, Everybody's a dress ship. I mean, folks, you got to understand just how impressive this is. You know, you've got several hundred guys in an aircraft carrier, the cruiser, you got the flags up. And then uh, the armored vehicle comes down initially, uh, and these guys jump out. It's all the Secret Service guys. And then down comes um, the beast. So the president and the first lady are in that. And then you hear from the aircraft carrier a bugle everybody for attention, right? So everybody's at attention, and Bud Langston, you know, he's saluting. I'm in my flip-flops and stuff, and the president gets out of the car, and I figured, be inappropriate to salute, so I'm just waving. <laughs> <laughs> and the president comes up, and he shakes my hand. Yes, sir, thanks, Mr. President, you know? So, so... So if they go, he goes on board the ship. In the meanwhile, uh, they, the, he went on, and then the rest of them had to walk down. So down comes the Secretary of the Navy, the Secretary of Defense, the four-star commander. So Bud goes, okay, you got to brief the admiral. So we pull him off to the side, and I try to give him the disposition of what they're asking for. And uh, what is your recommendation, Captain? I said, sir, I think you need to support the guys and, and approve the decision. Well, that's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Do I get a second guess? <laughs> he says, no. He said, that thing will go south, and who are they going to blame? You know? No, Joe, you go back and tell the general, permission denied on that mm-hmm. And I get think in retrospect, he's probably right. But, you know, what do you think? I guess wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it, was a, it was an interesting job, and the last thing that we did before I left um, is we had to evacuate uh, Cambodia. Mm. So there was a coup in Cambodia, and uh, the, the embassy needed to be evacuated. Um, so we deployed uh, to Cambodia, and um, uh, that was the last thing I did. Then I finally uh, left and, and then took over the center. And uh, so you know I was sleeping in my office, working around the clock, just an operational command, and now I take over the training command. And um, you know, I've probably been there for a month and a half, and one of your previous guests, Admiral Bill McRaven, is driving along the Strand. It's about 7.30 at night. He's going one way, and I'm on the other side. He takes his Jeep, and he makes a U-turn. He says, Joe, what are you doing? Coming home from work. 
get in the car. So get in the car. Joe, it's 7.30 at night. You're on show duty. You're driving everybody crazy. <laughs> you got to take a deeper breath and maybe just kind of pace yourself a little bit more. But Joe, they can they, 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 they cannot keep it up this pace here. But uh, thanks for the feedback, buddy. I appreciate that. You know, but you, you come from an operational command when you're doing something like that, and it takes you a while to decompress and become a human being again. Right. Yeah. And how was Buds from from now from the perspective? I mean, the last time you were there was as a student. Yeah. And yeah. Now, now you're back there as the as the senior guy. You know, people talk about the changes at Buds. Yeah. yeah. And there's other people that go, hey, look, it doesn't matter. There's little changes here and there, but the outcome is the same. Yeah. What'd you say? Um, yeah, I mean, it changed dramatically in that, as I said, nobody really cared about the numbers back then. Um, that if, if nobody graduated, nobody graduated. But at, at that time, we actually, and appropriately so, you know, people were looking for return on the investment. And, um, you know, we, we still had a, a, a really terrible attrition rate. But we also had some other things that we did that, um, you know, when, when I finished Hell Week, um, you know, I had to cut my boots up so my feet could fit in the boot. Um, and, you know, I had cellulitis uh, and just, that's it. I mean, so, and, and that was inappropriate that, you know, we had to do that. But, and then, you know, uh, the, the young troops back then, you know, every day that they'd come in and they'd change their socks out for them and mm. give them dry socks and just some other things. But, I mean, the mission of the command is to qualified uh, to, re- to graduate qualified individuals to go to the SEAL team, not break them and bust them. So, you know, whatever it's going to take to, to get them there. But um, it, was, it was really still pretty much the same, but um, uh, it needed a little bit of tightening up, just a little bit. So, you know, we had some structures there, and what I just thought we needed to do, uh, you, know, you know, I'm not too into this, as you know, Jocko, but I'd say, you know, I kind of have to drive a little bit of fear into these guys. Just, I mean, you know, a little bit too relaxed. So I went to uh, you know, the guys at the development group, and I said, can you send me a couple of warrants or maybe some senior guys that you know, would like to come on out here and help shape the community for the next couple of years? Mm-hmm. So um, we had some of the DevGrew senior enlisted guys come out. And um, so one of the guys showed up, a warrant officer, uh, who's a, a, a dear friend of mine, um, and we were one of the final days of Hell Week, and the kids are in the uh, demo pit. And the kids were in the demo pit, was setting off explosives around them, uh, and these kids are still singing. Now, this is probably Thursday or so, I kind of forget, uh, and they've already lost about 100 people in the class, so these kids aren't going to quit, but they are, they are beat up. And the instructors are doing their thing, and, I mean, he just arrived at the command, I said, hey, Danny, we're down there. You want to come with me down to the demo pit and watch? He says, sure, I'd like to come along. So, you know, I'm just doing there. I've got the master chief, and again, I'm not interfering. I'm, I'm, I'm watching. And I look over at this guy who is a DevGru warrant officer, and he's got tears in his eyes. Hmm. And I didn't say anything. And on the way back, uh, I said, Danny, how'd you, how'd you feel about that? I forgot. He says, I forgot what it was like. He said, I forgot. He said, I, for a little while I was there. And he said, it, yeah, it, so, yeah, it's the same. Um, and, the, the, you know, Master Chief Defelsky, who was a streets, streetwise uh, force master chief, um, uh, and uh, he really mud-sucked our instructors. So, you know, we all go through training, and as we look back on it in the rearview mirror, we were faster, smarter, stronger, better, 
And so he's the, the master chief in charge of all of the instructors uh, at, at, at Bud's training. And they're constantly complaining to the master chief about the quality of the individuals. They're not making this, and if they don't do this, they shouldn't be able to contribute. So Tafelski, really a smart guy. <laughs> uh, on a Friday afternoon, we have one big classroom. Uh, it probably seats about 100. So he's got all the instructors uh, in there. He made everybody come. It was mandatory. And he's got uh, uh, the, the chalkboard up there. He said, all right, first phase. What is the minimum standard that you need to have for the four-mile for the four mile run? And it went down for, to swim, the yo course, then, and the second phase, third phase. And everyone wants everything to be, you got to do better, got to be faster, got to right. be stronger. So, so he, he really mud-sucked them. So he said, let me understand this now. He said, because I'm going to go talk to the captain, and we're going to change things here. He said, so, but I want to make sure that everybody agrees. If you can't do this in first phase, if you can't do that in second phase, if you can't do that in third phase, you should never be a SEAL. Is that correct? That's right, Master Chief. You're right. Well, gentlemen, it just happens I have every one of your training records here. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give each and every one of you your training record. Then I'm going to walk out of the room. Once you finish looking at it and you see what you did, just put it back in the box and I'll see you Monday. <laughs> No, because it was true. They, you know, it's humbling to go back and look at your own record and see what the instructors said about you. You know, okay, it's all it. We still have the same. We've got, we've got the, we've got every single record from day one uh, on. And so, as a matter of fact, when I was there, I, I tried to burn down the uh, the, the, the room there that had my record. <laughs> and when did you leave Buds? What's that? When did you? When were you done at Buds as the commander? Well, uh, I, I was I was there for thirty nine months, which is a really mm. good, good you know, and, and honestly, uh, it was uh, just a, a fantastic uh, tour, not one that I wanted to do because I was going to go someplace else in Virginia Beach, <laughs> and um, uh, we had trouble with our attrition rate and getting folks through, so I got uh, ch- changed from uh, going out to Virginia Beach to, uh, to to the center, but it turned out to be uh, the, probably the, the most rewarding tour I ever had. To have people like Marcus Luttrell uh, go through training, and uh, you know, I remembered Marcus uh, because n- not many students break their femur uh, in, in training, and uh, so you know, it's not a good time when you know the the senior instructors and the doctor and the the master chief come <laughs> to talk to you about. Um, all right, uh, he broke his what? <laughs> he broke his femur. Uh, how? Stress fracture. Oof. Well. BS, right? So, I mean, we went through, and I'm going through this stuff. Right? So what happened was, I mean, right? I mean, and they were covering for him, and he did break his femur. So, and, I mean, Marcus, if you're listening. You know, so the instructors, you know, and if any of you think that you could beat me, of course, Marcus raises his hand. You know, this is the obstacle course. So um, we have, it's all technique. And now you're dealing with a SEAL that's been doing this obstacle course for years. It, you know, and um, now Marcus was good, but you've got a guy who, you know, these guys are like pixies going over this darn thing. <laughs> so you climb to the top of the uh, cargo net. Was that about 30 feet, Chaco? Yeah, it's like 30 it, feet. Right? And you throw yourself over, and, and but you do it in a technique that then you, you drop down a little bit, and you can grab onto the rope and, and work your way down. So uh, Marcus got there, and he knows this the technique, and he threw himself over. Uh, the only problem was um, he didn't grab it. <laughs> and he went down to 30 feet and hit, boom, um, and he broke his femur. So, I mean, to his credit, though, uh, went out, 
got rolled back and came back. But I mean, that that that's a good old boy there. But they lied to me, and, 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 as any good teammate should do, because you know, because they didn't want the instructor in trouble. And and I bought it. Unfortunately, and it wasn't until later on that actually Marcus told me the story that I broke my leg. He's the one that came clean. You know. Oh, that's epic! Yeah, this must be like the uh, the the glimpse that you get at human psychology when you're because I never worked at Buds, you know, mm-hmm. I went through it, but I never saw it from the other side. Yeah. The glimpse at human psychology of what people are capable of and what breaks them, and and that's got to be a yeah, that's got to leave a mark. Well, absolutely, and you know, you literally learn a, a lot. I mean, now you know, you and I go through it, but you go through it is different. You're experiencing it. But when you have an opportunity to watch class after class after class, you know, I just remember, you know, the, the my first Hell Week class, and um, this is Monday night of Hell Week. So they start off at Sunday. They've been at it for about, you know, 22 hours, 23 hours. They're having their evening meal, and uh, the class, you know, outside. And there's a couple of students staying behind in the chow hall, putting the chairs back into the table. Now, I thought that this was somewhat odd. <laughs> So I'm sitting there with the instructors having uh, 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 dinner. I said, so what are these guys up to? Yeah, they're just waiting for the rest of the class to leave so they can quit. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it was true. So you could just see, but what it was is nobody ever quit in the evolution. Everybody quit before the evolution in anticipation of what was gonna happen. And, and just now, uh, you can argue whether or not it is the most demanding physical course in, in the military. If it's not, it's close, all right? So I won't, I won't argue with anybody. But I will tell you this. It is a far more psychological program than it is a physical program because it's designed to keep you off foot uh, and the, the standards are raised and raised and raised or the, 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 you're told that this is gonna be the evolution today, and then they change it, but specifically, to that, can you adjust to that? Can you adjust to that? Um, uh, so it really, it is most of the people who fit, quit. Now, uh, I, I had a three and a half hour briefing today down there with our teammates, uh, an update on what the community's up to, and uh, Beef Dreschler, uh, gave me the pitch, and Beef just took over the center uh, on, um, on on Friday. And um, uh, they bring in uh, close to 900 uh, students a year to get 180 out. 187 is his demand signal, and 900. So it's still, in spite of everything that we've done, in preparation, as you said, you know, when you went through, nobody knew. When I went through, it was a trivial pursuit question. You know? <laughs> I mean, but now these, these guys are prepared, they know what they're doing, and they all, I said to them today, what is, the, what is it? They, they self-select, they raise their hand, and they, they, you know, we lose a couple from academics, uh, we lose some from pool comp, but the vast majority of it, this is not for me. And when I used to get the young men in the, you know, now I was not an instructor. And um, and I would get them all after the instructors talked about Hell Week. I'd go in there and I would just talk to these guys. And Marcus talks about that in his book. Uh, I just said, look, it's as simple as this, guys. You know, every one of you guys can make it through. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. I mean, you've already been here now for several weeks. If you're not going to make it, you're the one who decides you're not going to make it. It's not going to be us mm-hmm. at all. And you know, 
It's as simple as this, guys. I mean this sincerely. The secret to life is just don't quit. <laughs> just don't quit. I said, don't doubt yourself. Um, and, um, you know, these guys, they, they doubt themselves, but it's, why am I here? And I used to say, them, when they first came, what you, you know, Buds is not the SEAL team. Buds is Buds. It is where, why you need to spend 26 weeks to get where you want to go, but don't even think for a second that this is SEAL team. But I will tell you this, you put up with this for 26 weeks and you get to that SEAL team, it will make everything that you did here worthwhile. Trust me. I was down there a little while ago and uh, <clears throat> you know I was walking around and there was, just with one of my friends that, that works there, and there's 100 helmets by the bell. Mm-hmm. 100 helmets by the bell. And he says, you know what? I said, I said that's a lot of quitters. This, you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Two weeks in, I said, that's a lot of quitters. And he says, you know what? Every one of those guys is a stud. Yeah. A stud. And he's, he's basically referencing compared to us when we went through. Yeah. You know, when I went through, I thought if you did a, a pull-up workout where you did 30 or 40 pull-ups, that that was a pretty good workout. And you don't realize when you get to Buzz, you're going to do 300 or 400 or five. You just didn't know. We didn't know back then. But every one of these kids now, they're studs, physical studs. Yeah. But they still quit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the difference, though, physically, I would say, is, um, you know, when I went through Eric Olson, Bill McRaven was two classes behind me. Um, the way Eric put it, and I think this is right, back then, uh, it depends on your parents were if you're going to make it through Buds because it was endurance. Everybody had to run forever and everybody had to swim forever back then. So it was a different type of body type. Mm-hmm. Now, not everybody looks like you, John, but, <laughs> but as you know, when, when, you know when, when I took over the center and these young men lined up next to the pool in just their, their swimsuits, it was a completely different physique mm-hmm. on those young men, uh, but we were preparing them for different things as opposed to no long range patrols, you know, no, 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 ten to twelve days in the field, no thirteen-hour swims. You're going to go to the Hindu Kush, um, and you're going to go to Balad, and you're going to go to Ramadi, and you're going to go to Fallujah, and you got to wear heavy equipment, and you got to yeah. carry a, a lot of stuff. So, it, it changed. And I don't know what's going to happen now that you know we're we're changing, and Admiral Howard, rightfully so, is going back into uh, strategic competition, great power competition, and putting the community back uh, into a maritime focus. Mm-hmm. Get those wetsuits ready, boys. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, did you, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, people always ask who's going to make it through? Who's going to make it through? And I would never put a bet on anybody one way or the other of who's going to make it through or not. I don't care where they came from, what their background was. I, I remember one of one of my commanding officers, uh, uh, Captain O'Connell, he, had, he, he, he told this story to me and I, I never forgot it. He had, he had, there was some officer that was putting in a package to go to Bud's. And he said, I've never backed anyone before. I've never, I've never backed anyone. I've never said this guy's gonna make it. And this guy had this pristine record. He was an athlete this, he was captain of that. He was all these things. He spoke two languages, maybe even three languages, just to complete that. And finally, O'Connell you know, signs off his package and says, yeah, take this guy to Bud's. And the freaking guy quit on him. And he said, I will never ever back anybody again. And to me, that you know, that was a captain that had been in the teams forever and denied all these packages. And even yeah. with that level of discretion, you can't tell who's going to make it and who's not going to make it. Oh, there's Jim. Jim yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. No, no, you really can't. 
uh, and, and because you really don't know what's going on behind the eyes. So uh, we've got members who are on the national teams, um, whether it's the national swimming team. National, you know, I mean, these are very accomplished people, Division One athletes. And but the other thing as well, you get some kid that comes out of high school, goes to boot camp, uh, did intramural sports, <laughs> and he's standing tall on graduation day. <laughs> Yeah, that's I mean, me. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. 100%. And I had a I had an I had an Olympic alternate gymnast in my buds class quit uh-huh. and I had the NCAA water polo team captain in my class. Mm-hmm. Quit. Yeah. And like like I was that guy that I was an a, Average, if not slightly below average athlete in high school, and hey, stuck it out. They weren't going to make me quit. That's the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you when uh, when September 11th happened? I was uh, assigned United States Special Operations Command, um, and <coughs> excuse me, I was assigned United States Special Operations Command, and you know we talked a little bit earlier, Chaco, about the, the community uh, and what. <clears throat> the fleet commander said what my father said, and here I am. I got promoted to one star um, at the end of August uh, of 2001. Wow! And um, uh, a little more than three weeks later, I'm sitting in my office, United States Special Operations Command, and um, you know one of the the troops comes and he leans against the the door jam, and I said, well, "What's up?" He said, "A plane just hit the uh, uh, twin tower." So. You know, you know, being mm-hmm. a New Yorker, yep, yep. and I'm thinking, okay, you know, this is foggy day, and you got a small aircraft there, and he's not leaving. Uh, you know, and uh, just thinking, okay, I got a TV. I said, do you want to turn the TV on? That's what I like. Yes, sir. So uh, I'm behind the desk. I got the TV over there, and I look up. I go, it is a perfectly beautiful day in New York. Um, and I mean, shortly after that, I mean, with moments, I see the other plane flying south on the, on, on the Hudson River. You don't fly south on the Hudson mm-hmm. River. Uh, the plane's going into Newark. You've you got to fly north or you've got to go around. And I'm thinking, what an idiot. That guy's flying that plane around just to get a better look at that. How stupid. And then, boom, he goes into the second tower. Uh, and I mean, immediately. And I get up, and I ran into the SOCOM commander's office, uh, uh, General uh, Holland, and I said, General, we're under attack. We're at war. He said, "What are you talking about, Joe?" I said, "Turn the TV on." I said, "We're we're we're at war," and um, so obviously that was a long day to kind of sort everything out. And um, I finally got home uh, about maybe one o'clock on the morning, two o'clock in the morning of um, of the twelfth. And uh, so I'm just having a little bit of orange juice and maybe an English muffin or something, try to get a couple hours before I got to go back into work, and the phone rings. And uh, I pick up the phone. I figured it was the headquarters. And there's this shrill voice on the other side, uh, just kind of screaming. And all of a sudden I realize it's my brother. (laughs) And my brother was at 220 Church Street, which is a block down from the Twin Towers. And uh, he was at a meeting and um, saw the first bill. He didn't see the plane hit, but he saw the... The, the building on fire. I said, well, maybe we should adjourn. You know, I mean, again, nobody could believe that it was happening. And, you know, he said, so by the time they adjourned, he went out to the street. You know, he actually, you know, viewed, you know, the people jumping for their lives out of the, out of the Twin Towers, which is pretty traumatic. But then he had to walk home f- across the Brooklyn Bridge 
all the way to his home, which probably wound up being, well, I don't know, maybe about 12 to 15 miles because uh, there was no transportation. Everything shut down. So by the time he got home, that's when he calls me. And it, it kind of broke down to, Joseph, get them. I know what you do. It's up to you guys. Get them. I think I'm just trying to calm him down because, um, okay, Bob, I'll do my best, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And um, so, uh, one, I never thought I'd be an admiral, never. Uh, and I certainly never thought I'd be an admiral when our nation was at war. And uh, to have that opportunity to, you know, actually be a flag or general officer serving in the United States military when the nation's engaged in you know, decisive combat operations was, you know, quite an honor, but also, as you know, Jocko, quite a challenge. And, uh, you know, it took us a while, but we finally, we finally did it. And after it, on uh, May 2nd of 2011, I called my brother. So it took a while, Bob, but we got him. And I'll tell you what, when that happened, now I retired uh, in July of 2010, and um, I'm up early in the morning, uh, not as early as you, but probably about 5.30. And um, I'm, I'm uh, in the kitchen and uh, you know, got a little bit of a cup of coffee as I'm putting my running shoes on. And I thought I heard something on the radio about bin Laden. I mean, I just wasn't paying attention. That doesn't. I, so um, I just waited till 6 o'clock to hear the news. And you know, folks who stayed up late the night before, they knew. And I still had no idea. And I heard what had happened. And um, I was just thinking, I mean, I just sat down there. I couldn't go for a run. I mean, I just had tears in my eyes. Um, and that I know full well, and so do you, the heavy road, the toll that was paid to get to Abbottabad, all of the blood and all the lives and all the, the brave men and women, you know, who got there. And so you know, by the time I got to work, you know, everybody's jubilant. And um, I said, you know, I had quiet pride. It was pride because it was our teammates and then the 160th and the CIA. But um, it was really emotional for me just thinking about whether it be Matt Axelson, Danny Dietz, uh, or all of the other folks that, uh, you know, uh, uh, bourgeois, uh, uh, all, all, all the men that we lost there uh, in Afghanistan. And um, so, yeah, that was, uh, you know, people be getting my haircut. And how long have you been in the Navy? Uh, 36 years. Well, how'd you stay so long? Well, you know, we've been at war for the last 10 years, buddy. <laughs> you know? And uh, it was on our shoulders. Yeah, but, um, you know, when you know full well, this war was personal to you and me and to many of us. And the other thing as well, it's just hard to explain to people how you can become friends through death, that you meet parents and you meet family members that you never knew, but you knew their son and you buried their son and you were on your knees giving a mother the flag that was on her son's coffin uh, and you get to know these people and you stay close to them, you know, for, for a long, long period of time. So... Uh, and I wound up there at SOCOM, and um, you know, it was an interesting time for me. I was a baby, baby one star, and it was a small place. We uh, only had five, uh, five flag and general officers then: the four star, the three star, two green beret, two stars, and me. I was the baby. 
but um, uh, we, I, it was a great place to learn. And one of the officers there, Eldon Bargewell, uh, was a Special Forces uh, General Officer. And up to that point, uh, Eldon was the most highly decorated uh, soldier in the United States Army. And um, you know, school was certainly in session uh, for me, uh, you know, work, working with Eldon. So that when I left there and then um, went to Naval Special Warfare to take over the community, I left there as the deputy commander under uh, Admiral Eric Olson and came back, you know, close to four years later. And I just remember, uh, you know, remember Captain Barbara Ford. Uh, just said after that, she goes, oh, my God, you turned into an admiral. <laughs> <laughs> We're at war. You know, you had to. Yeah. So my uh, my commanding officer at SEAL Team 7, I was on deployment. I was in Iraq having just the, the best deployment ever, just having a great time doing a bunch of operations. And, and he says to me, the last thing I do as commanding officer of SEAL Team 7 is I'm going to make sure that you become the admiral's aide. He pulled it off. So that's where, that's, how, that's how you ended up with me. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it was wonderful. You know, um, you know, between uh, you and, um, you know, and Beef Dreschler, uh, you know, you know but, uh, folks out there, you, you know, you've got a good idea what Jocko looks like, I'm sure. But uh, Beef used to be the center for Navy, and uh, he's also uh, a, a pretty pretty strong guy. Well, uh, my name is Jocko. Yeah. His name is Beef. Beef. I know. <laughs> kind of says it all. But when, 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 when uh, Jocko, uh, when Beef was replacing Jocko, we had the families over for dinner. And uh, we're there at dinner, and my daughter uh, is sitting there, and she's probably about 10 at that point in time. And she looks at the two of these guys, and she honestly asks, Beef and Jocko, uh, are you guys my daddy's flag lieutenants, or are you guys my daddy's bodyguards? <laughs> and the two of them go, yes. I said, you guys screwed up. You should have told my, my daughter, your daddy doesn't need a bodyguard. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, I sure did. And, those, and if I had one, these are the two guys that could do it. But um, no, I, you know what, what I, what I Always asked. I never interviewed anybody to be the the a, the flag lieutenant out there, folks. What I would do is go to the senior officers. I go send me a champion, send me somebody who's just come out of combat, somebody somebody who's got a future ahead of them, somebody somebody who's willing to work really hard. Um, and because I you know don't use the flag lieutenant and the aide to carry my bag. I carried my own bag. What I needed was to bring a lieutenant into the meeting to hear what was being briefed or what needed to be resourced and be able to turn to that lieutenant and say, do the men need this? Is this what they want? Or what do they want that we haven't? And, you know, I because that individual, whether it was uh, you know, Jocko or Beef, came right out of the battlefield uh, and had that credibility. It was only a year of their turn in the barrel, and it's a very demanding job. I had been a flag lieutenant myself. I understand that. But um, uh, it was just Jocko was a tremendous resource for not only me, but the community. And then as well, when Jocko then went back into, you know, his SEAL team and became a task unit commander, he almost becomes like an apostle to the rest of the community to explain why we do what we do, because now he knew he'd been to the inner sanctum. But uh, it was an absolute honor. And, you know, the way I considered uh, to be, uh, you know, you and me, our relationship, is just like in any relationship in the teams, we were swim buddies. I mean, that's just early. We had each other's sex. We had each other's back. But I leaned very, very heavily on you, and you never, never, never let me down. You always came through, Jocko. Yeah, and then um, obviously when we were going through that deployment in Ramadi, it was just awesome. Like I, like I started this off, you know, this the support that you gave me and there, thereby the rest of my, my task unit was just, it was awesome. 
Well, you know, we were a community at war. It was on our shoulders. And I know that you were taking it very hard uh, because, you know, we were taking some heavies. But um, when you're at war, you have to realize you're at war. And, um, you know, there's going to be um, casualties. And But, you know, th- at the end of the day, uh, you were highly successful in your mission. And you came out of that with uh, extreme high regard. But, um, you know, to me, you know, several years later, as you know, um, we're christening a Navy land attack cruiser up in Bath, Maine. And um, uh, one, of the, one of the great honors that I've ever had was normally when you christen a ship, I mean, everybody's there, senators, congressmen, and the Secretary of the Navy is the guest speaker, uh, the main speaker. And because of my relationship with, with, with Mikey Monsoor uh, and with you and Task, task Unit Bruiser, uh, that the Secretary of the Navy asked me to be the guest speaker there. But uh, I think I also mentioned to the speaker, you know, it was Task Unit Bruiser. If you got any questions on why we call it that, look at Lieutenant Commander <laughs> Welling. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Uh, I, I know we probably could talk for another few hours, and I know that you got to go, which pretty much to me mean, means at some point you got to come back and we can tell the rest of your story because uh, th- this was not the, the end of your career of service and you ended up doing much more and um, yeah we, you'll have to come back and next time you're in Coronado we'll come up and finish the rest of the story yeah well I tell you Jocko I'd, I'd love to come back and uh, we've had a great visit here in Coronado with the uh, center change of command visiting uh, our teammates uh, spending you know uh, three and a half four hours getting briefs from on the committee this morning is just inspirational. But um, you know I, I believe in a life of, of service and um, uh, and as far as a, a leader is concerned, you know you've got to be a you know a leader who sacrifices. Uh, you know, and when I was asked to come back into government, it wasn't on my scope at all. But uh, I came back in and uh, you know wound up being the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, which I was very comfortable in that. It was my strike zone. Uh, but then when the president asked me to become the director of national intelligence, not necessarily my strikes <laughs> in there, but I will tell you uh, to, to start off and have a rubber boat in your head, uh, and, and then years later, you know, you're sitting there as the president's intelligence officer uh, at the National Security Council, and even, you know, I had a, an interesting time there, as I'm sure you know, that I, I had a testimony uh, there for... Three and a half hours uh, in the House um, uh, uh, Select Committee on Intelligence uh, had to do with the whistleblower complaint. But, uh, you know, for three and a half hours, you're on camera and you've got some, you know, very, very bright and uh, talented people asking you some demanding questions. But it was uh, the very first time that I was really, really happy that I went to high-risk SEER <laughs> <laughs> and understood interrogation techniques. <laughs> so, I'll tell you what. Uh, even as that, I knew that was happening, and I sat down <laughs> to watch it. And I, and and you can, you know, they look like sharks in the water. You can see them. They're, they're thinking they're going to, I go, you don't know who you got. Number one, he's from <laughs> Brooklyn, number one. Number two, he's in the teams, Harvard, the whole nine yards. I said, this isn't going to go as well as they think it's going to go. No, I didn't. Uh, you know, as I'd say what. Um, no, I mean that. Uh, it was. It was because I, I, I will tell you this though, uh, Chaco. There, um, not only was I representing the the entire United States intelligence community, but having spent thirty six years in our community, you know, I really feel like you know here I am. I know I'm on national TV, and it's going to be a, a a pretty important hearing, which probably would lead to what it did. Um, and I just forget, I'm still representing the United States Navy and uh, our special operations community. So I just figured all I'm going to do is t- 
tell the truth and play it straight. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. And um, and, and and I did. And um, I, I think at, and at the at the end of it. I felt like um, I did my job and I was able to leave with my head held high. Yeah, well, that was the other thing I knew. I knew you were from Brooklyn. I, I knew you were from the teams. I knew that you went to Harvard and the whole nine yards. But I also knew that if they were looking for something that you had done that was immoral, illegal, or unethical, I knew that they could not find it and they would not find it because I, I know you and I know that you do the right thing. And so that's why I watched that with... Uh, with great joy. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, just before I got the job, uh, it was uh, the, the White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, did the uh, the vetting. Uh, and, uh, you know, Mick told me, he said, you know, I've talked to everybody, especially everybody in the special operations community, and I couldn't find one person to say something negative about you. Now, I hadn't been offered the job yet. I said, Mick, give me a day. I'll give you a list of people. <laughs> I did. I didn't necessarily want that job, but, but I got it, and it went okay. <laughs> But Jocko, it's been a great honor. It's so good to be with you, uh, and it's always good to be with the teammate. But I'm I'm so proud of you for not only what you did when you were in uniform, but uh, you know what you have accomplished as far as just not only personally, but the way you've been offered to give back with your leadership and uh, what you're sharing with the world, whether your books, your podcast, and there's so many people that I know that listen to this podcast, read your books, and really learn a great deal about leadership. And um, you know, folks, I tell you. Um, uh, when people ask me, do I know him? I do. Is he the you know is he is he the real deal? He's the real deal, and uh, uh, I'm honored more than I could possibly tell you to be with you today. And folks, you know I do plan on taking Chaco back up in this offer and come back and visiting with you sometime in the future. So thank you, my friend. Be outstanding, and and the things I say today are the things I learned from people like you from our great community. And thanks for coming to talk to us. More important, thank you for everything that you've done for America, for the Navy, for the teams, and of course, for me. It was an honor to serve with you, and I look forward to talking to you again. Likewise, Jocko, thank you. And with that, Admiral, Joe McGuire has left the building, and Echo, you didn't even get a chance to sort of ask a a question. We were moving pretty quick, and he had another event to attend. So you have to save your whatever. Did you have any questions? Uh, not at the moment. I actually asked the one. What's the the lockout thing? Whatever. Yep. There's a lot of little stuff, man. He, that he, you know, that I'm like, hey, wait, what is that? Not yeah. even necessarily because I don't know what it is and I need clarification. A lot of times it's like I don't know what that is, but it sounds kind of interesting. Maybe not to you guys because that's part of your guys' everyday yeah. thing at the time. But for me, it's like, man, even that lockout thing, bro, that's interesting. And I I think it's one of those things where imagine if you were hearing a jujitsu story about like you're caught in an arm lock and you were the, and then they had the triangle too and you were and you all I would need to tell you since you know jujitsu if I was like hey I was caught in the arm lock and the triangle both at the same time I started having the walls close in you would know what that meant yeah someone that doesn't understand jujitsu is just like oh like kind of. It doesn't really mean that much to them. In fact, right. it almost means nothing to them. Mm-hmm. So w- when the Admiral was talking about that whole lockout thing and the German U-boat, yeah. that is a crazy story. That is a crazy story. I, the cold, the, the, the claustrophobia, the yeah. changes in pressures. Did that come across? Could you recognize so, how freaking crazy that was? Yeah, so it, it did come across. Mm-hmm. But you know what else was clear to me that – 
that what you're explaining right now, that was the case. And and I did not want to interrupt at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from at least so I can grasp an understanding of what the lockout procedure is. Right. So I know even more. But yeah, so the claustrophobia thing, anytime you guys talk about submarines, I do remind myself because my friend Jeremy, Jeremy would tell me about like mm-hmm. these submarines and there's those little diver vehicle yep, things yep. or whatever. So seal delivery vehicles. Yeah. yeah. So he'd tell me about that. And it's like, bro, it's not like. It's not like cool, like on the movies, you guys are cruising yeah. in the office with no. the thing, bro. The thing is like super cramped and super, and bro, you, I don't like that claustrophobia stuff. Yeah, I know like, you don't. We'll put, <laughs> we'll put it this way. I'm attuned to certain cramped. Yeah. Um, 21 areas. inch tube, by yeah, the way. See? 21 inch tube. Yeah. And, yeah. So you guys are talking about that and I'm like, boom. And then, yes, then you guys are talking about like these procedures, like kind of like, oh, we all know what those procedures are. I'm like, wait a second. We have claustrophobia. You got freaking the submarine. You're underwater. You're doing all this stuff. But I want to kind of want to hear more. It's kind of nuts, yeah. you know, but that's not, that wasn't the point that he was making at the time. So it's like, yeah, I don't want to derail the momentum of the conversation. Yeah. Well, uh, at some point, maybe we'll go into a little more detail about what those types of operations are like. I was lucky because when I came in, to the teams, we still did that in the normal teams. And once the war kicked off, we didn't really do submarine lockouts in the normal teams very often, if at all. Not to mention, we used to just dive like it was going out of style. <laughs> like it was going out of style. Yeah. And once again, once the war started, we're fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're not doing a bunch of combat swimmer dives to prepare, training dives to prepare to go to Iraq. Yeah. Like there's some rivers, but we're not doing harbor infiltration on dragers that's but i was lucky enough to be able to do that a bunch a bunch and just get some of that get some of that (laughs) it is a freaking hard job man it's a hard job you mentioned something uh kind of kind of in passing like kind of quick where you you have the operation, mm-hmm. but all the steps to go through the operation are just completely painful, like yeah, completely yeah. painful. So like, you, you know, you talk about the temperature of the water. Mm-hmm. If you haven't swam or been in 40, 30 something degree weather, I have mm-hmm. ice bath scenario, yeah. whatever. But nonetheless, I know what that feels like on that prow. What if that was just your world, you know? That's when your you, world. <laughs> that's that's your world. And, and that was what was interesting. He was talking about getting into the submarine. Yeah. After jumping out of an airplane and then landing in the middle of the ocean, then you lock into the submarine, going, one person goes in fin first. It's crazy. Yeah. And by the way, then you're just on the submarine. You still haven't even done the mission yet. You're not even close. Darkness. You're not even close. You haven't even started the mission yet. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's like that kind of stuff where it's like, man, you could elaborate on the feeling of like a 10 second period mm-hmm. for a long time and really paint that picture. That would be interesting. Yeah. That'd be nuts. Yeah. We'll have to get to it at some point. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, That's as true. you like to say, mm-hmm. we, uh, we, we might not be in those scenarios, but we want to be ready for various yep. scenarios. We want to improve our capabilities yep. for diving, swimming, shooting, living. Fighting, whatever we're doing, yep. whatever we're doing, it's true. How do we how do we improve our capabilities a little bit here and there? What yeah. do you think, Echo Charles? Where should we start? Interestingly, you talk about diving and swimming. I bought a man. This is a few months ago, so I didn't know that masks for like you know diving and stuff had like that many levels to. Oh, there's levels, you know? bro. There's like some good masks. Anyway, yeah, I bought, I got a good one, and okay. I was like, all right. Makes you kind of want to go swimming more too, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. So it's like when you get these things, you it kind of pushes you into the game a little bit more. Right. 
I'll give you an example. All right. So what are we doing? We're working out. We're reading. Mm-hmm. We're listening. True. When I say working out, there's various kinds of workouts. Obviously, there's jujitsu, there's weights, running, cardio, mat cons, all this stuff. Nonetheless, you can take some damage on the way. Mm-hmm. Got some doms right now, by the way. Squats oh. yesterday, side note, all day. And conditioning. Nonetheless, you might need supplementation. So, good news is Jocko has supplementation. So, first, we'll start with the cognitive and physical stuff. Discipline, go. Kind of groundbreaking mm, in a way. Very. Yes. So, let's start with the cans. So, energy drink. Boom, it's the new energy drink already. Established already. Yeah. The new one. The new wave. The new paradigm. Isn't it funny? There was all these other companies making, quote, energy drinks, and none of them saw this big, just giant gap in the market. They were just saying, oh, we'll put more sugar and more caffeine yeah. and, and, and more people will buy it. Yeah. And they didn't see this big hole. A bunch of people actually wanted to drink things that were healthy yeah. and actually gave them real energy, not just a freaking sugar rush sugar multiplied spike. times a, a caffeine jitter and call that energy. So anyways, they didn't see it. Cool. We did. Here yeah. we are. Yeah. And I get it. Cause like, you know, as a company or whatever like you kind of some let's just say some groups kind of play off of weaknesses of our brains or whatever and go for that superficial um you know whether it be palatable you know just that easy that easy win you know tactical and they can play off of that and you can get some good numbers with that that's the thing so they play on like people's weakness in a way play on the short-term gratification of human beings yes so if you call, you know if you call that a weakness, we'll play on their weakness, right? But the good thing about this is you don't play on mm. people's weakness. You actually play on their strengths. To be honest with you, you help their long-term strategic goals. Oh yeah, but you but the good thing or one of the many good things about this is that it's both short-term and long-term. <laughs> it's amazing. Discipline, go the energy, <laughs> and actually the one that is the most short-term payoff, as far as taste goes, is the mango. Factually speaking, even though you're it. drinking a whoop ass watermelon, well, right now, you know, you ran out. We're, we're <laughs> it was well, in short supply. So I yeah. will say this one thing that's cool about these drinks: the different flavors taste actually taste different. It's not like the uh, some other quote energy drinks that you can. There's a bunch of flavors, but they're all just basically taste like sugar water. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know, um, I, it's been a long time since I had any other energy drinks, but. Yeah, I can remember that that was kind of the case one way or another. Nonetheless, okay, so Discipline Go, this is, if you haven't gathered already, it's a healthy energy drink that you will, you will literally be better off after you drink it than before you drink it, and it fulfills all your energy drink needs. Very legit. Very legit. There's also like the mix, Discipline Go, the mm. mix. Mix it up with water, whatever on the go, and capsules. So keep this in mind first. Cognitive and physical supplementation in general. Also, get your immune system in check. Vitamin D3. We got some Cold War. We got the joint maintenance and repair. Kind of both in one. Get some joint warfare. Get some krill oil. Uh, And, of course, of course, glory be to the protein gods. We have milk. Yep. (laughs) It's true. Right. If you're trying to – and here's the thing. I don't know if we talk – yeah, we talk about this where – yeah, if you're trying to like build muscle, which I think is a very worthy goal, by the way. We we are in support of building muscle. You want more muscle? You want less muscle, right? 
the di- not dichotomy. What do you call them? The simple decision. What, yeah. do you, what do you call that kind of decision? The binary decision. Binary decision, right? Yeah. You want more or you want less? All right. So if you want more, you need extra protein to yep. add to the muscle that you're trying to build. So do you know the minimum amount of protein you need? Uh, one gram per pound of lean body mass. Oh, <laughs> Jocko coming off the top ropes I with some bro science from 1996. From what I understand, that's on the high end for sure. Okay, well. But keep in mind. Let's okay. round it up, right? All right, well, let's say what? Let's say the average, let's say someone weighs 180 pounds. Okay. So you need 180 grams of protein. You know how much protein there? That's a lot. It's a lot of protein. There's a lot of steaks in one day. And steaks are pretty high in protein, see what I'm saying? Yeah. So the mulk, this serves this serves that purpose very well. Here's a good thing about mulk: like we already know, it t- actually tastes good, like actual dessert. Mm-hmm. So now you can have two desserts in one day. You'll be better off than you were. And if you're trying to build muscle, boom, facilitate. You can have breakfast, dessert, lunch, dessert, dinner, dessert. Snack dessert. Get yourself that. some milk. Oh, yeah. But you get all this stuff. JockoFuel.com. If you subscribe, if you want to get it shipped to your house for free, subscribe. At JockoFuel.com, we'll send you all the stuff that you order for free. You can also get the drinks at Wawa on the East Coast. Vitamin Shop, you can get all these products as well. And and a lot of people hitting me up like, hey, can you get this drink You know, in Milwaukee and in Tucson and in L.A.? We're working across the country. We're literally having meetings all the time to get this stuff propagated throughout the nation. Because yeah. we, want, we want everyone to be stronger, faster, smarter, and better. Yeah, so yeah, we'll let you know as we as we get out there. Yeah, it is about the long term and being prepared, hundred percent. Also, Origin USA. So you go to originusa.com. This is where you can get your American-made stuff, apparel. Got some boots on there, boots and jeans. They'd say that's the what do you call the flagship kind of scenario. Yes. There's some jujitsu stuff on there. Pete was on there. He's demonstrating, or how should I say, displaying, showing, whatever, some new pants. The new work pants? Yeah. I got them. <laughs> they're freaking legit. Brother, I am so stoked. Brother, there's, there's some, you were talking about wetsuits earlier today. Yeah. And to me, this is kind of the, the, the image I got. It's like you were talking about those old wetsuits and mm. your new high-speed oh, wetsuit. Yeah. It's kind of like. source, yeah. Yeah. So these pants that Pete, Pete was showing they're in the, the little new. video. That's They're the, the new, new work pants. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, if you get regular work pants, cool. And it's cool. It's better no, than actually, no work pants. It's actually not. It's like having one of those old wetsuits. Yeah. But it's better than it's no wetsuit is what I'm saying. Marginally. Okay. <laughs> there, that, and that's my point. And right there's there. no reason to. It's yeah. not like there's going to be, um, you know, no, there's no reason to. Yeah. Back in the day, it was, hey, this is the cheapest government contractor that can build us wetsuits that suck. Oh, yeah. And then other manufacturers are out there making badass wetsuits, but we didn't get them yet. So there's no reason for that. Oh, yeah. So now you got the same deal. Boom. You want the new, the the, the updated, effective work pants. This is this is the kind of stuff Origin does. Mm-hmm. Straight up. That's the game. We're going to make everything, by the way. Oh, yeah. Everything. Uh, also, make geese. And, hey, if you want to put your gi to the test, come to the Origin main jiu-jitsu camp retreat intensive immersion yeah immersion camp that too <laughs> and here's the thing about that too because some sometimes people will be like oh is that is that thing just super intense or Dude, like chill. what is it's it like freaking what's fun. up like three jujitsu three times two times whatever a day they're like man like i like jujitsu but 
I don't know if I'm down for these, you know, this hell week Navy SEAL. Uh, 30% of the people that are there will have less experience in jiu-jitsu than you, even yeah. if you only have two weeks of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And, and there'll I, be some freaking awesome badass black belts and brown belts and purple belts for sure. But there'll be a lot of people that are just getting their start in jiu-jitsu. So come and check that out if you want to origin check originusa.com. Yeah, and it's not like it's this big competition no. training all the t- bro, I I've and I'm not going to name any names and it, actually it's cool. You can go there and not not spar with people. You can go there just learn, learn the technique, talk with some people, go swim in the lake mm-hmm. straight up like it's a jiu-jitsu vacation that's it's what a, it is that's straight up we should have called it the jiu-jitsu vacation yeah yeah and and the good news you could even call it a va- depending on your 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 intent going there you could call it a vacation with some level of jiu-jitsu <laughs> depending on what you're yeah. curious about whatever level jiu-jitsu you <laughs> yeah. want you can go level 10 even. you can go level 10 yeah you can train three times a day you can train rounds. you could train probably 14 hours a day if you want to yeah, in jiu-jitsu or you could train zero zero it's up to you watch, yeah oh, and but, it's just kind of a va- it's a vacation with some level of jiu-jitsu involved if you want. And lobster. And lobster and steak. So check it out, <laughs> originusa.com. Also, uh, we have a store, by the way. Yes. What's that store called, Echo? It's called Jocko Store. So cool. anyway, jockostore.com is where you can get your shirts and hats and hoodies, light and heavy. Rash guards on there, some shorts on there. I'm going to update some shorts. Get some new shorts on there, too. Are they the ones that I've been asking for? Yes. Okay, that's good to know. As soon as those come out, I need five pairs. Okay. Just kind of FYI. You got it. Just kind of FYI. 100%. So. There's, a, there's a lot of cool stuff on there. Discipline equals freedom. Good. Anything. When you want to represent while you're on the path, this is where Are you the get new shorts going to be the same material as the old shorts? You tell me. I say yes, because their material is good to go. Yes, sir. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah, so yeah, some shorts on there as well. Um, yeah, if you want something, get something. That's a good way to represent. Also, we have the shirt locker. It's a new shirt. It's a subscription situation. New shirt every single month. Different designs, not as <laughs> good, good <job>. designs. Good <laughs> You're hired. Hey, look. For sure. Hey, that we, was a great we, description. We collectively have been struggling to, to demonstrate <laughs> or to explain the, the, um, the qu- quality of these new designs. Just say we got some cool designs. They got some. We you, do. Have you could have cool. said that. Yeah. Well, said you said there. But that doesn't. Something. That doesn't capture it though. See, because every time people are like, "Hey, that design is cool. Can I have it?" And I'll be like, "Well, that was two months ago." Okay. See, what I'm saying. So I got to convey it accurately so people know going in. It's an element of trust for sure. But they're cool, are cool designs. Check yes. it out. The shirt locker. Yep. It's on Jocko's store. Hey, also subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget, we have some other podcasts. We got Jocko Unraveling with Daryl Cooper. We got the Grounded Podcast which we haven't done in a long time. We got the Warrior Kid podcast, and we also have the Jocko Underground podcast, jockounderground.com if you want to subscribe to that thing and get on board and help us build the underground where we're going to be laying in wait and things. If things go sideways, we'll be there. Yep. We're stockpiling material. Sure. We got food. We got water. We got content. Yep. Jockounderground.com if you want to check that out. Out eight dollars and eighteen cents a month. Some people know what that eight dollars and eighteen cents represents. Not many though. Take a guess. And if you can't afford it, hey, look, we we want you in the game. Even if you can't afford that eight dollars and eighteen cents a month, we'll still just email assistance at jockounderground.com and we'll take care of that. Also, we have a YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel where. Uh, 
a lot of the videos, some of the videos, I should say, some of the more premier videos have I'm the assistant director on, and it's very obvious when they're awesome. You know, it's funny. They yeah. uh, uh, I, I released a video mm-hmm. recently. Mango mayhem. Mango mayhem. Mm-hmm. So people are catching on to the whole assistant director thing. Why are you saying it like that? Because well, because. People, I think, give, might give you uh well, then again, I guess it's not undue credit because the author, I know you say this is kind of a joke, but like every once in a while, you'll add like a little detail. I add a critical detail. That turns out to be kind of critical. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so in that video. It hurts you so bad. It, that hurt it hurts you so bad that whatever I add is usually critical. Uh, okay, so here's the thing. You're, you're right in a way. It doesn't. Okay, we'll use the word hurt. It hurts me not because, oh, Jocko did it, thought of it, and I didn't. It's more that. Jocko thought of it. Thought of it, did it. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to Bro, explain. Bro, that'd be like if I was writing a book about yeah. leadership and then you added it, you were like, hey, you need to discuss this thing right here. And yeah. I couldn't not do it because it made so much sense. Yes. I yeah. could, and, and you know what? My ego would be affected by that. That's okay. So and that, that's where you're at. That's the part. Like I, Well, maybe it is, but I don't feel overtly that it's my ego. It's more that like, oh, shoot, I didn't even see that. Like, mm. frick. How maybe, can I be so stupid? How can I be so stupid? Yeah. Nah. How could I be so pathetic in no, my job? No, no, no. How can I not be... Better, better, not a loser. So you know, <laughs> you know, like you, you uh, walked up like in that video. You walked up right at the beginning when yep. you walked up and you're doing this, this part. Yep, yeah, like that. That was pretty good. I pretty gotta give it. I'll hand it to you, Assistant Director Jock yep. over here. So, anyways, we got yes. a YouTube channel. You yep. can subscribe to that, and we also have an album that's called Psychological Warfare that will help you get little moments, get through little moments of a weakness. I'll kind of get in your head a little bit. Press, press play. Mm-hmm. Go to your MP3 platforms to get some of that. If you need a visual representation of the path, cool. We got that for you too. Well, Dakota Meyer does. Flipsidecanvas.com, got all kinds of cool stuff to hang on your wall. I've written a bunch of books. The 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 latest edition, oh, I don't have it on my table. It's Final Spin. Okay. It's a book. I mean, it's hard to describe. It's a transcript, it's, it's a novel, it's a poem. We don't even, the, the publisher doesn't know what to call it. They've never seen anything like it. All they know is that it, it they, they are impressed. All they know is that they are emotionally moved by this piece of work. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get some of that, order it now. Final spin. Get that first edition. You're going to want the first edition of that. Because listen, hey, I'm going to write another leadership book. But guess what? That's another leadership book. So even though you get the first edition of a new leadership book, it still is the first of a dish of a series of leadership books. If you want to get in early on the novels, the first edition. Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual, the Quality Evaluation of Protocol, Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, Way of the Warrior Kid 1, 2, 3, and 4, Mikey and the Dragons, About Face by Hackworth. I wrote a little forward to that. What an honor that was. And then the OGs, Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. We also have a leadership consultancy called Echelon Front where we solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details. EF, oh sorry, Extreme Ownership Academy. Go to extremeownership.com if you want to get, if you want to go to the leadership gym. Leadership, you don't learn leadership in one day or by reading one book. You got to get in the gym, you got to be consistent. 
Go to ExtremeOwnership.com. Check out our online training platform. All kinds of activities going on there. We also have a live event. Next one is Phoenix, August 17th and 18th. We are not sold out yet. People are a little bit nervous, some people, I guess, about Miss Rona. Uh, But we are getting close. So that's Phoenix, August 17th and 18th. After that is Las Vegas, October 28th and 29th. Those have all sold out in the past. These will, too. Get in in on it early. Go to echelonfront.com. Check the events. And if you want to help service members, active and retired, you want to help their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom. You heard about Mark Lee today. What a freaking hero he was. And his mom has been carrying on his heroic attitude with her charity organization. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you, well, let's face it, if you want any more of my tedious testimonies or you want to have, for some reason, you want to hear more of Echo's ridiculous reflections, you can find us on the interwebs, on Twitter, on Instagram, which Echo only refers to as the Gram, and Facebook, Echo's at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to Admiral Joe McGuire for coming on, for sharing his experiences, but more important, and I think you realize this, thank you to the Admiral for your incredible service to our great nation. And to the rest of the military out there right now, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, thank you for your service as you protect freedom and democracy around the world. And the same goes to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all the first responders out there. Thank you for protecting us here at home. And to everyone else out there, think about the impact that you can have. And, and yeah, think about it, your own life and you want to have a positive impact in your own life, but think about the positive impact that you can have on others. Think about what you can do by reaching out to people, by supporting them, by doing like Admiral McGuire did for me, by being there for people, by helping them shoulder some of that weight. It isn't about you. It's about the team. So support your team, support your family, your friends, your community by going out there every day and getting after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko, out.